Blog Talk Radio. All right, welcome to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. Today is Thursday, November 30th, 2017, and we are live today, running late, has some technical difficulties, still haven't completely worked them out. I'm calling in, calling in from a second line, couldn't call in from my Skype line. Uh, Skype was acting up, but our guest tonight is um, the author of Black Label, White Wealth, and Poweronomics, and Dirty Little Secrets About Black History, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, you've seen him in the documentaries, uh, the Black Friday documentaries with me. He's in Hidden Colors uh, uh, 2, The Triumph of Melon, and An Out of Darkness. And his latest book is called A Black History Reader, A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. I'm talking about the one and only Dr. Claude Anderson, so let's get him on the line. He's been waiting. Sorry for the delay, Dr. Anderson. Can you hear me? Yes, I, I can, Michael. How are you doing? I'm all right, man. Just running into some technical difficulties over here and uh, still haven't figured Still haven't completely worked them out, but I, but we're good. I got I've got you on, so we can we can go ahead and do the interview, man. So <laughs> all right. Oh, okay. So I know you're running Michael, like crazy. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. But Michael, Michael, if if you run into the difficulties, you know you can always cut at some point, discontinue, start again tomorrow, next week, and pick it up where you left off. Don't worry about me. I'm I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to help you any way I can. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, man. Okay, well, look, your your latest book is called A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. And this book is written in the format of uh, questions and answers, okay, 101 questions and answers, dealing with black history and our conditions, things like this, right? And That's I just right. want to share with people. Yeah, go ahead. Say it again. Go ahead. I'm listening to you. Oh, yeah. And I just want to share with people the first paragraph on the back of the book, and then we're going to jump right into it and have you tell us about this. Uh, but it says, after 500 years, why are blacks still on the bottom? How has social integration failed black Americans? Have the nation's immigration policies injured black Americans? Is the U.S. Constitution an affirmative action plan for whites? What will be President Barack Obama's greatest legacy? And in the in the opening paragraph here on the back of the book, which everybody should get from Paranomics.com, Paranomics.com, uh, it says, for nearly 500 years, blacks in America have lived within a continuum yeah. of social economic systems, legalized slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and political correctness, that now distributed nearly 100% of the nation's wealth, land, resources, uh, rights, privileges, and controls of all levels of government into the hands of whites. Simultaneously, those systems consign blacks into an impoverished, powerless underclass, denied the fruit of their labor, freedom, and basic rights. It was impossible for blacks to be anything other than what white society wanted them to be. The U.S. Constitution, the court system, and major corporations were all complicit in locking blacks into a carefully designed, social construct on race, that social construct instituted even before the official founding of the nation was so culturally entrenched that not the Civil War, the black civil rights movement, or social integration could significantly alter its effects. Brother, that is a lot right there. So tell us about this book. Okay, uh, it's a book that's sort of capstoning everything I've been doing. 
I guess, throughout most of my life in all levels of politics, mm-hmm. education, and business, Michael. And since so I wrote that book okay. to be, I, I wrote my books to be vertically integrated, to be and uh, to be mm-hmm. almost like what you call. You heard about the Da Vinci Code, right? And then this yes. was the, I want to break the whole code of racism. The first book was at the floor. The first floor says I got to tell black folk in very quantifiable terms exactly what their major problem is in the country. Forget all that BS you hear about social integration and civil rights. That was not your problem. Your problem, as you just read, is the fact that this country intentionally used slavery to systematically socially engineer black folk into a lowest level of a real-life monopoly game and to maldistribute almost 100% of everything of value and importance and power and resource into the hands of the dominant white society. That was the purpose of slavery. That's what we should have been addressing. Right. Quit wasting time messing around with politics and all this other stuff. You need to focus on that. They came out of civil rights. Nobody focused on that. They want to start talking about stuff that's non-defiable, non-declarable, that's intangible, ceremonious. Like, well, what do you want? I want freedom. I want liberty. I want opportunity. That ain't worth a damn. You can't count those things. <laughs> you can't measure them. They should it's have been saying, we want something. That we, that, right. The things that they cannot see, can't smell, can't touch. That's all they said. After 500 right. years, that's all they wanted was something you couldn't see, feel, and touch, and couldn't take to the damn bank. And so that, so that was the first book, Black Labor, White Wealth, said, here's your problem. The second book, Power Numbers, was saying, now, but white racism is not perfect. You can beat it if you do some very specific mm-hmm. things. And that, that, that book says, here's how you beat it in that way. Then the, then the, the next two books, uh, Dirty Little Secrets 1 and Volume 1 and Dirt and Volume 2, says this that you are very special people, that nobody on earth, not in Africa, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, any place, are like black Americans. You are very special, unique people. Nobody on earth mm-hmm. have been mistreated and maltreated like blacks in America. Consequently, you should let, never let anybody put you into very broad, ambiguous categories, call minorities and poor folk and people of color, diversity, multicultural. Mm-hmm. That does that as insult to injury. And that's, that, then it's, right. that's, what, and that's what those about. Then the last book... The black reader says, "Now I'm a capstone to wrap everything up by asking you about questions that you have that you never thought to ask. But even though you never thought to ask those questions, Michael, they demand a common sense, realistic answer. Even if you never ask them, they demand a darn answer. And that's what I, so that's what that book is about. It goes through and shows you in very graphic terms and questions, uh, 101 questions. There's no way that any black person can read the black reader." and not understand the nature of the problems and what you got to do. And that's why, and all my five books were designed, that's why we sell them now in a, in a vertical package called the li- uh, a library pack for $199. The black folk now okay. there's no way not to understand the problems. Right. Now, I, I want to I back up for just a minute, and I read, I read your books, and you know I read your books, and I was with you in Chicago about three or four weekends ago at the Harold Washington Cultural Center when you were there doing a lecture about your latest book. Once again, everybody, it's called A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask by Dr. Claude Anderson. You can get all of his books and that bundle pack he was talking about at his website, powernomics.com. Powernomics.com. Okay, make sure you support this brother. And uh, also, is it? Um, they, they can also if they they can also get it at their uh, local African American book dealer. Is that okay? Also, uh, yeah, any, any place they can get it. But uh, but no. But go go okay. to the powernomics.com before you go to Amazon. 
Oh, yeah, go to FileKnowledge.com before you go to Amazon. Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more of our money. He's worth $100 billion, okay? So absolutely, all right. Um, so you talked about how slavery, and on the back of the book it talks about how slavery was an affirmative action program for whites and maldistributed wealth, power, and resources into the hands of dominant white society. And you said that instead of focusing on politics, uh, civil rights, and things like this, black people should have focused on correcting that maldistribution of wealth, power, resources. Did, did I hear you correctly when you talked about that? Absolutely. You're, okay. You're so absolutely. how? Okay. Okay. So how should do you think that black people should have gone about that? Because at the same time, when we study the history of slavery, keep in mind slavery was slavery came out of politics. Politics deals with laws. So slavery dealt with politics as well. So how do you think black people should have um, corrected the maldistribution of wealth, power, and resources? Well, for, first of all, you're right, uh, but uh, Micah, but see, yes, slavery came out of politics, but, but politics came out of economics. That's, that's, yes. that's what our people yes. didn't miss. See, racism mm-hmm. is an economic issue. It's always been an economic issue. It, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's the only thing. Racism has absolutely nothing to do with politics in general, anything social. It is economics, pure economics. Slavery was an economic mm-hmm. issue. And, uh, and it's always the greatest power in this nation is an economic power. And our, that's where our people right. focus their attention. And, uh, and for instance, let's go back to the, the biggest generator of wealth in this country originally was black labor. That was a generator. That, that's a generated labor. And that and what and how was to be used? Say that again. It was used. black what? You were breaking up a little bit. You, you said the greatest generator of wealth was black what? Black, it was black labor. Right. See, see when when the black whites labor. came into this, yeah, when whites came to America, mm-hmm. they came here with the, uh, looking for first of all uh, free land, free Indian land. But the land right. had very little value. Land had practically no value, Michael, without a slave mm-hmm. on it. And so consequently, that's why Andrew Jackson, General Jackson, now the President Jackson, says that a black slave brought almost 90% of the value to land was by a black slave on it. That's why this country invested almost $8 billion into the slavery industry. That was the primary generator mm-hmm. of wealth. That's why the South became so right. powerful. And so the first thing they did when they set up their constitution as it being an affirmative action plan, they said, we're going to invite anybody into uh, this country under first, some very strong stipulations in the ranking order. And so when they, enacted the, when, they, when they ratified the Constitution, Michael, in 1789, they said this is now a, a, a United Nations, and this is a Constitution. This is a basic document, the Bible, for this democracy and how we're going to operate. And then and one year later in 1790, the first thing they did was enact what they call a nationalization and immigration law. They said this is a white nation. Right. And only whites can come here, and, and, uh, and blacks cannot come here. And if they do come here, they come here only as slaves. But any person around mm-hmm. the world who can come here, they can come here and get free land, free land, and they can have, get access to free black labor. And, that's why, and, and so that's why when George Washington set up the Constitution with Thomas Jefferson, he said land would be the major factor in it. Are you still with me? Mm-hmm. That would Thomas, be the major yeah, factor. Thomas Jefferson. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, well, well, first of George Washington. George Washington demanded he wanted 100,000 acres of free land. Thomas Jefferson said, if right. you're going to give George Washington 100,000 free acres of land, I want 100,000 acres of free land. And then Patrick Henry, that you write, read about in the history book, riding somebody, give me liberty, give me death, he said, if you're going to give those two uh, free land, 
besides giving me death, give me 65,000 acres of free land. And every white person <clears> came coming to America was, on, was entitled to 650 acres of free land when he hit the damn shoreline in those days. And they, they picked they pick right, up another right, 150 head, head acres right of that. free land. Huh? Mm-hmm. The head they right. Every, yeah, see, I'm getting an echo. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, let, let go me go. I'm echoing. Okay. Yeah, you're all right. You go ahead. Okay, and so, um, so they and so if they, for every slave they got, they got 150 acres of free land through land grants and homesteading acts. Mm-hmm. And to make a long story mm-hmm. short, <clears throat> the United States gave away one billion, not M but B, one billion acres of free land to whites coming to America, and in that and that in itself, the land in itself. Double and triple in value every 20 years, and then and they gave and except the railroads, they gave out 24 million acres of free land to just to the 11 railroad lines, and then and in that not only did there was the land valuable and doubling and tripling in value every 20 years, but also all the gold, the silver, the timber, the chrome, the bauxite, the magnesium, diamonds, oil, and gas on in that property was also tripling in value. And that, that's where the wealth came from. All that wealth by law and by the Constitution in the United States' first nationalization law went to whites. That was an affirmative action right. plan for whites coming from around the world. But on the other hand, when mm-hmm. blacks tried to come out of slavery, they would not give black folk not one free acre of land. Not one, but they'd given out one billion to just the whites only. Now, and, and all, that, all that land and all that wealth, gold, silver, chrome, balsamic, magnesium, anything with name, oil and gas, is locked into the white society. It's locked into their into their, into their into their community, into their culture, into their businesses, into their stocks and Wall Streets. Therefore, and that's, the whites still own 99 and one half percent of everything of value in the country. 87 percent, Michael, is frozen. You cannot get it. It's locked into the white society. Only 13 percent is up for grabs. And black folks should have focused, saying, hey, you cannot own 80 December said, I'm finally out of this, this mess, but you've got to redistribute some of that resource to us. But instead, they tricked blacks into going to social integration, and our black leadership said, well, we don't need to own anything. Basically, all we want to do is be acceptable to you all. We don't mind staying in the position we're in with nothing and, uh, and trying to earn. So if y'all just promised us a job and education, whites that, that's how, how whites get their money. Whites don't get their money from jobs and education. They get it through inheritance. 87% of whites' annual income is unearned. Slavery was unearned income. Presently, today, with Donald Trump and his people, that's unearned income. That's why you got 658 white billionaires in America, and they don't have to work. They live off unearned income coming from stocks, real estate, bonds, income, and trust accounts, and rental income. Blacks own and control nothing. You're locked in box through the affirmative action plan. The first one was initiated in the Constitution and the nationalization law in 1790. The only other affirmative action plan was the one I issued in 1970. I issued the second affirmative action plan in the United States for the state of Florida when I was over education for the state of Florida, and I did it strictly and solely for blacks. But I did not do it for handicapped, gays, women, midgets, humpbacks, Asians, Arabs, Hispanics, anybody. I did it for black folk. But it was corrupted just like it then, just like the, 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 the civil rights laws and the 13 to 14 minutes was corrupted in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, looking at your book right now, okay, question number 10 is uh, what is racism and can a black person be racist? And the reason why I think this is important 
And uh, I talked about this um, at the All Black National Convention uh, back uh, early October. Dr. Boyce Watkins has. I was on the panel discussion. Okay, and um, uh, you know when we have sometimes when we have these conversations on CNN, MSNBC, things like this, and they talk about racism. Blah blah blah. They never define what it is from a historical perspective. Okay, so briefly, what is racism, and can black people be racist? Well, see, and well, I thank you because see, I, you know, I know Boyce Walker and I consider him be one, one of my friends. But see, what they need to do is yes. to say, hey, Dr. Anderson has defined what racism was and what it is. Mm-hmm. And see, the problem is that you got you, you got a lot of people in this country that use the word racism, black, both black and white, that have absolutely no idea what racism is, and they convoluted and corrupted Correct. it. And, and try to and try to spread it out so they neutralize black folk. Racism came never existed on this earth, Michael, until about until about yes. uh, 1488. What you had before that time, you had tribalism, ethnicism, and you had and you had uh, various kind of wars between groups of people who were con- in conflict for religious reasons. So to be a, at that time to be you could you, there was no such thing as a slave that was not either. He, had in, he was enslaved for personal indebtedness, or he was enslaved for religious reason, or he was enslaved because he was a prisoner of war. And so up until up, that was true for, throughout most of the history. Now, what, where racism again kicked in was about 1445, first of all, when Henry the Navigator went off the coast of Africa and picked up 16 black Africans and took them back to Portugal and, mm-hmm. gave, them to the, and took, gave them to the Vatican. And the Vatican said, we use these as slaves. So from 1445 up to about 1488, they used those black folk as slaves. And so in 1488, Pope Innocent came out and said, hey, these black people, are, this, this is good labor. This is a good thing. And uh, so, it out, so in the future, if you want to have a slave, you don't have to worry about having a slave because you have personal indebtedness or he's a victim of religious persecution because we had a Catholic church at that time or because of a, a prisoner of war. Go get you some of these black folk. And he, so he put out a public edict saying if you're going to enslave people, use black folk. And that was in 1488. Now, here's how slavery, that's how racism began. So about five years later in 1493, 1494, here comes Columbus because he came to America. And he saw all this empty, vacant land over here. And then and he went back to Europe and said, hey, I found some land. And this was critically important because that particular time, the entire European continent was going down the toilet. They were overrun with rampant, with, with crime, disease, famine, and all kind of conflicts. They couldn't make it. And they had and they had plagues, bluebonnet right. plagues, and everything else, and uh, and they were mm-hmm. dying off. They needed something to res- resuscitate the entire European continent. It means all those countries: France, Germany, Russia, everybody. They needed something to save the entire Russian continent. And they said, "Okay, if you found all that land in the Western world called American, North America, South America, Central America, and uh, and now the Pope Innocent says use these blacks for labor, we got a new thing. It's now and, and what we're gonna do is instead of using mercantilism." Let's let's try to use black labor, this, this labor, and get to America and start building wealth. And so at that point in time, they they they, they abandoned mercantilism and, and a race started, R A C E started. Where all where nine European nations said, "Hey, we, I'm, I'm gonna beat you to America." That the Poles, the French, the Germans, the Spanish, the Portuguese all said, "We're gonna do that. All of us gonna do it. We're in a contest, so we can get to to the Western world and get black labor and get that free land." And build wealth and power, and so a race was initiated, and they spent, and all the countries participated in coming to America in a race, looking for resources using black labor. And then by 1880, 18, but 1859, 
they had transferred almost 100% of all the wealth in this nation to the hands of white society, and the race ended. And when the race ended, which means there was nothing else to transfer because whites then owned 99 and 1.5% of everything, and the fit 5 million blacks in America owned absolutely nothing. And so the contest ended. And when the contest ended, the race was over. So what they did, they took the E off the end of race, R-A-C-E. They took the E off and then stuck a suffix called I-S-M. I-S-M means maintain the prevailing conditions. If now if the dominant white groups all around America has come to this country, has enslaved and profited off of black folk, and they only control 99.5%, and blacks, 5 million blacks own nothing, then racism means let nothing change that relationship. And that's when they came up this thing called Darwinism and survival of the fittest and strongest. And they said everybody must be committed to make sure no resources pass from white hands into black hands. That's why they were opposed to affirmative action. That's why they're opposed to reparation. That's why they opposed anything that would move to a level resource. And so at that point, racism ended. I mean, a race was over, but racism began. And racism stayed an economic issue all the way up until about 1950s. And when blacks came out of it, when they still started talking about restoring, redistributing the resources, they, and, and, uh, and ended the race, they said, well, let's not make it on economics anymore. Let's pretend that it's a social issue. It's whether or not you like a person. And so through our civil rights movement, they always talked about getting along with somebody, whether or not you like a person, whether or not you love him, whether or not you can go to his school, whether or not you can go to his restaurant, whether or not you can go to his home, whether or not he was your friend, whether or not you can marry a white woman. They made it a personal issue, but, but it never touched it being an economic issue. And so and they say, well, black folk well, can be a racist. Black folk cannot be racist. Racism is a – here it is. Here's the, the definition you should use. Racism is a competitive right. relationship between groups, point one. It is a group-based phenomenon. It is a competitive relationship between groups of people who are competing for the ownership and control of resources and wealth and power. And then once they get it, they then use it to shut down, enslave, and Jim Crow and, and deny another group life qualities. That's what racism is. It has, that, that's the definition of it. Now, no blacks in America uh, uh, can be, unless they're unless they passing for white, they cannot, they don't, they're not in the group that has the wealth and power. Only whites right. can, have, can be white, can be racist. They've got to be a, minute, a, a, a member of the group that has the power and wealth and be able to exercise it collectively, whether it's a Ku Klux Klan, whether it's across America. No black in America has enough power and wealth to be a racist. He cannot be a racist. He doesn't belong to a group. And, it, and as an individual, you cannot be a racist as an individual unless you're a part of the group. Right. Well, and race means group. The foundation means group. So racism is a group-to-group relationship. That's um, right. You got it. So it, and people people don't understand this. So they talk about black racism and things like that. Now, there's, there's no such thing as black racism. Blacks can be bigots. We can be bigots. But there's no such thing as black racism. Well, only thing a black person can do is react to white racism. See, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and see, he can react to white racism, but he cannot be a racist. And, and, and plus that they've also mixed these other things, other human characteristics like bigotry, hatred, bias, prejudice. Right. Those are natural human characteristics. Anybody, everybody right. on the earth must have biases. They must be prejudiced. They must discriminate to make decisions. You cannot make decisions, life's decision, if you're not biased, prejudiced, and discriminate based on previous conditions. So black folk, uh, that, that's a normal condition, but that had, those things have nothing in the world to do with racism. Racism is a separate phenomenon that is now about 500 years old, mm-hmm. going back to 1503 right, exactly. in Europe. 
Yeah, it's, and it's a power structure. It's a power structure. And and when I talk about it, 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 it I deal with how it comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. Okay, I, you know, and, and it's the power structure that upholds white supremacy and makes people think that Europeans are superior. You know, so so people really have to understand uh, that history. Okay, now well, Michael, see, that's a good person. See, the term you use called supremacist. See, I wish mm-hmm. blacks wouldn't use that term because, see, if they do that, they're mm-hmm. stepping on their own toes. White people are superior and supreme. You know why? Because they only control 199% of everything. White supremacist means that you have failed to correct the maldistribution. As long as they got all the power and wealth and everything, they are supreme to you. You got to go back and say, no, you're not going to be superior anymore. I want my share, share. I want these resources redistributed. We cannot just, see, if you start to say, well, that's white supremacist, that's a broad, ambiguous, generic, generic term that means nothing. They got to say no. What they they will always be superior as long as he's got all the buildings, all the equipment, all the land, all the money, all the wealth. You don't own or control anything greater than one half or one percent. Where an average white person in America owns thirty five hundred times more wealth than black folk. Where they, where you got three to four white men in America has more wealth than all three hundred. I mean all. I'm sorry. I mean, got, got, got more wealth than all forty four million black folk put together. So as long as you allow, mm-hmm. as long as you allow them to control, as long as they stay in control of everything, they are superior to you. They can make the decisions. They can say where you live and sleep because they own all the damn hotels, the restaurants. They own the airlines, the airplanes, the railroads. Yes, they are superior. I don't, I don't. But we didn't think they're superior because the white skin. No, it's not white skin. It's a condition. They got all the wealth and power. You got nothing in your condition. So white supremacy must be related to condition, not to skin color. Okay. All right, um, and I thought, well, you know, I, 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 I even go even deeper into it related to history, but I deal with how it's a false concept that has real consequences and repercussions. Um, so, but uh, let me ask you this question. Okay, sure, so uh, on ahead, page, ahead, uh, okay, so page 15 of your book, uh, yeah, oh, can, can you hear me? me? Yeah, I can, I can hear you. See, you can keep going me? out there on, you know, go ahead, though, page, page okay, 15. Okay, so page 15 of your now? book. Yeah, question number five, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s colorblind dream, take the focus off of black rights. Talk, talk, black, take the focus off of black rights. Talk about that, because when I studied Dr. King, um, his focus wasn't on colorblindness. I mean, he, he, I mean, he talked about being proud to be black. Uh, so, 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 talk, so talk about what you mean there. Okay, well, see, up until, up until, uh. <clears throat> Until uh, see most of history, uh, it was always perceived black folk were working very hard to get resources, and uh, and the build and and, the mm-hmm. key, and uh, they, even though they didn't have any education, they were not stupid. They knew that the basic mm-hmm. foundation of racism is economics and land. So after they left slavery, Michael, between about 1865 until about 1920, black people with no education and 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 disorganization, no structure, that they had managed to successfully acquire almost over 20 million acres of land in the United States by 1920. And they had acquired that land. And by 1920 also, they had, they had, they had, they had 20 times more businesses than black, the per 100,000 blacks that they got today. They had more businesses in 1920, 20 times more than they got today. So the black folks knew the ports of land and business, and they were struggling to do it. And, so, and, that, and at that point in time, for a 20-year period between about 1915 and about 1935, those blacks were busting their ends to, to try to do what they could to correct some of the maldistribution of resources. 
That's why W.B. Du Bois came out, and he said he gave his definition of of what a uh, uh, what uh, what we're saying is what a racialism. Capitalism. Capitalism. Which is really oh, capitalism that okay. came out of racism. Yeah, capitalism. He said capitalism is like having four years of corn. You eat, save, and sell, and use the seeds for next year harvest. That's and that's and that's almost mm-hmm. like uh, in fifteen oh in fifteen oh three, capitalism came out of economics and slavery and out of racism. It says. That it, that in capitalism it means owning, control the land, the tools, and the resources, and using other people's labor to generate wealth. So whether it was whether you use the definition of 1503 or use uh, W. B. Du Bois' definition, it had nothing to do with social integration. And so when W. B. Du Bois said that in 1915, so he started talking about black economics. He was, I mean, uh, black politics. He was followed very closely by Marcus Garvey, who said, "Let's talk. If you're going to talk about black politics, let's talk about black economics." And then he picked up by Carter G. Woods in 1920. Said, "We're going to talk about black economics and black politics. Let's talk about black education and black culture." And then, uh, then you had later on you had um, uh, uh, Muhammad. He came out and said, "Well, if you're going to do that, let's have black religion." And then later on you had the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, huh? yeah, Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's so let's talk, let's have some black art stuff. And so that so they were talking. They were focusing on the black thing. And so by 1928. Uh, some group of blacks got together and started raising cane around the country, demanding that this country quote started dealing with the, re- the maldistribution and said we want black some things for black folk because you corrupted the concepts of the civil rights movement and took it away from it, gave it to everybody. We want black rights, black rights for black folk. And, and uh, at that time they were using Negro and black. We that's what we have. We're not after trying to take care of minorities and poor folk and people of color, humpbacks and midgets for black folk. And they had, so they asked for. They were trying to get a bill of rights again for black folk. And see, and then when Martin Luther King came on later, he switched it from from from. Uh, he, he put out a program. He changed it to disadvantaged and for poor people. And that's why he got lost. And then all the blackness disappeared because in 1970, 1968, uh, President Nixon came out with this thing called benign neglect. Said so you take the focus off of black folk and shift it to minority women and, and immigrants. And then, uh, and then, and then, and later on in 1970, that, that 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 transformed itself into what we now call political correctness, which means make every form of blackness disappear, and makes it that that black folk are not put brought forth in any public policies, any programs, or any public recognition. And so that and that and that came out. It seemed when 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 Martin Luther said, "Let's be concerned about all people." That's, that fell back into the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution always talked about all people. And the Constitution was initially designed to exclude black folk. So when you read the United States Constitution, it says, we the people. They're not talking to black folk. With all the people, they're not talking to black folk. We the citizens, they're not talking about black folk in the United States Constitution. The only time you, they, you show up in the United States Constitution, they came, up, they, they came up with a strategy to hide and duck you and make you disappear. They spent one week, an entire week, in Philadelphia, before the convention, the, uh, the Constitution Convention opened, they spent a whole week saying, "How do we popularize and popularize a cradle of democracy and, and, a, and a new land of opportunity?" At the same time, we're getting ready to enslave five million black folk. How do we do that? And they, they discussed it. They drew shades. They put locks on their doors. And finally, they said, "What we do? We use. We write this document up. Let's take the. Let, let's use different terms when you talk about black folk, when you talk about white folk." And so in the Constitution, it talks about we, the people, all the people, and uh, American citizens right. and all this kind of rights and all. They're not talking about black folk. When they talk about black folk in the Constitution, they use words like those who indebted, those who in bondage, that specific species, that unhappy lot, those who are, those who are uh, disappointed. They, these broad terms always refer to black folk. 
and that's why that's why they never used the word black or negro or slaves in the Constitution. They made you ambiguous. Right. And so in 1960, with the Martin Luther King thing, again, uh, even though our people did the best they could in the civil rights movement, they saw as far as they could go, but they went back into the did They fell victim to that old trick that was used in the Constitution, which means to make black folk disappear. That's what Richard Nixon wanted. That's what the, and, that, and out of that grew the minorities, poor folk, immigrants, and the, and the women's movement came out when they, when, they sh- when they shaded down black folk and made black folk in, in disappear. All the problems you see now in the paper, all those issues with immigration, globalization, uh, all that stuff, and women's issues, Title IX, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, all that stuff came out of the fact that they subordinated and eradicated and made black folk invisible and disappear. So, uh, yeah, yeah, they they smothered our issues, um, it, it, and and they you had a reversal of uh, affirmative action, which came out in September 1965, signed by President Johnson. You're going to have a, a reversal of that and, and broadening broadening that in 1967, and then uh, you have John Patrick Moynihan with the benign neglect uh, benign neglect memorandum as well. Uh, which reversed uh, any type of gains that we made, any type of gains. Um, let me ask you this quickly, uh, then I want to um, have you comment on what we should be doing now. Um, when you talk about Dr. King, you know, Dr. with the Poor People's Campaign, Dr. King was talked, which is in 1968, so he was assassinated April 4th, 1968, before it took place. But he talked about... Um, how the U.S. after slavery ended gave land to poor whites and gave land to immigrants coming to this land and neglected the the former slaves. And he talked about how when, he said when we go to Washington uh, in this march, he said we're going to get our check. And he was dealing with a redistrib- redistribution of the resources. He laid, he laid out the history uh, briefly, you know, he didn't have as much time as you did, but he laid out the history of how after slavery ended, land and resources were distributed into the hands of Europeans and the government was involved in that. Okay. So do you talk about that at all in your book? Yes. All, all that's covered. And see, and, and, and the unfortunate okay. thing again is that Martin Luther did a magnificent job, you know, for, as, a, as a super, super black man at that point in time. But see, back in the 1960s, mm-hmm. what I was stressing at that time is that they made the mistake, like you say, a poor people's march. The issue in this country is not poverty. They keep falling in that same trap. Mm-hmm. They use these very broad right. Why in the world do you want to talk about poverty? Right. You cannot correct poverty. Nobody's enslaved poverty in the country. Nobody's Jim Crow segregated poverty. Poverty, but in, that's a horizontal issue. You got poor, got poor people all around the world. Why would you focus on trying to eradicate poverty with, with poor people when you've got poor people all over the world? That has nothing to do with black folk. Black folk were the only people right. that were segregated and, and denied wealth and power and resources. But, but our people love to use these broad terms, minorities and poor folk and disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they haven't got enough backbones or spiritual consciousness or intellectual facility or, uh, or internal fortitude to say, no, we're trying to correct those people who were systematically, historically uh, denied and, and handicapped, deprived by all levels of government. They did nobody, nobody systematically deprived poor people or minorities. Right. And what is a minority? Don't right. you want a, demor- a minority? What's a minority? A one-legged man, a one-eyed man, a peg leg, <laughs> humpback midget. What's a minority? What's a poor person? <laughs> Everybody's poor. Right, exactly. 
See, Michael, that's why the Bible says the poor will always be with you. You must always have poor people. <laughs> see, see, the, the, uh, see we, live in a, we live in a world, a phenomenal world, psychophysical world, that says that there must always be an opposite and equal reaction. If you've got an up, you're going to have a down. Mm-hmm. If you've got an in, you're going to have an out. You're going to have a back, you're going to have a front. As long as you're going to have rich people, you're going to have poor people. What black folk have never, 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 never in my historical experiences in all levels of government and trading with presidents and governors, I have never, never been to convince black folk to understand, quit jumping into these bags, these broad, ambiguous bags. You cannot eradicate right. poverty. You cannot agree. And what you need right. to do is say, if black folk are the only people who were intentionally forced into poverty, you should, you should say, go get some wealth and figure out how to get them out and leave poverty alone. Quit trying to eradicate poverty. Leave poverty alone and get blacks out of it. And that's what I wish Martin Luther had said. Hey, we don't care about poverty. If you've got poor whites, you can always have poor whites. You can have poor Indians and poor Asians. That's not my his responsibility. His responsibility is focused strictly and solely on black folk. And if, they want, and if anything other than mm-hmm. that, for moral reasons, they correct that in heaven. God to take care of that after we are so holy. We all go to heaven. But God, <laughs> Jesus said, I'm no longer in this world. No black person on the earth can. If, black, if Jesus couldn't straighten out poverty and stop it on the world, why would anybody else want to try to erase it? Take care of your own people. Drop your bucket where you stand with your own people. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I, the the term poor people's campaign, I have a, a problem with that. And the reason why is is because when you study, when you read books like The the Secret, dealing with the law of attraction, or you read books like uh, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Ecker, right? When, when you when you when you name things about what you're trying, when you name things after what you're trying to get rid of, you attract more of that to you that you're trying to get rid of. So when you name something "Poor People's Campaign," your focus is on poor as opposed to creating wealth or you know cre- creating the, the better conditions. You know, you, you you don't name something after what it is that you want to get rid of. Because I totally you agree just with attract you, more of that to you. <laughs> Go ahead, say that again. I, I agree with you. See, you got you got it down pat. You got it. You got yeah. it. Why, why, would you going, why would you be going? Why would you leave home going looking for poverty every morning? Right. What you're trying to do is go get you go get the forces that are necessary to correct the conditions that you've been subjected to. And in this country right mm-hmm. now, people with Doctor Elson, they don't like us because our black because our color. That's that's a lie. It's not your color, it's your condition. If, if, I, if I could enrich all these blacks in America, if I had, like whites right now in America, got 658 uh, white billionaires, if I had 658 mm-hmm. black billionaires, man, we wouldn't, white folks wouldn't do a damn thing to us. We got enough wealth and resources now to get and build what we want, build our own communities, our own train lines, bus lines, airplanes, do everything we want. Own cities, have big apartment buildings and big office complexes. We don't need to be kissing on white folks trying to go to their restaurants. Where are our restaurants? Where, we got two damn hotels in the United States. Where are our restaurants? We don't own and control nothing greater than one half or one percent. We got maybe maybe two blacks who soon be billionaires, and whites got six hundred and fifty-eight. And right now we're, we're almost mm-hmm. thirty-three, a third of all white people in America are millionaires. And here, all these black folk got over thirty-nine percent of all black folk and meet the poverty line. Please tell these black folk to cut that right. poverty crap out. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, this. Um, and see, the other thing. Well, you have about thirty. As of two thousand nine, you had uh, thirty five thousand uh, black millionaires um, in this country, uh, and most of them did not become millionaires from rapping or dancing or singing entertainment. Okay. Um, but uh, 
along with see, there's also a poverty mentality, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to beat up on anybody. You have a lot of people who have good hearts and they mean well, but then they, but they don't think from a, a wealth creation mindset or economic empowerment mindset. Economic empowerment is really more important than wealth creation because we can all have you know as I told Dr. Boyce Watkins, I said we can all have stock portfolios valued at one million dollars and still spend ninety eight percent of our dollars with people that don't look like us. So that wealth has to be transformed into economic empowerment. Those are two different things and not the same thing. Um, so, well, 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 let, uh, which, leave that point. Go ahead. Go ahead. Did, did, did Boris Walker direct yeah. you all into the things I mean that, that he reads my books and learn about building economies and how oh, to yeah. build those economies? What, what did he say? Oh about, yeah, yeah. He talked. He talked talk about, about you all Wall the time. Street. Yeah. See, I would rather mm-hmm. talk about Wall Street. What, what did he tell you about rebuilding black communities? Oh well, we well um, I don't know if he we specifically talked about that, but he, he talked about that. But we, he, he talks about the need to rebuild our communities. He did the documentary Resurrecting Black Wall Street, the blueprint that I'm in, and um, he talks about the, the need uh, to, uh, t- you know, take our dollars to build economic apartment, to build our own communities just like Asians and, and uh, uh, other ethnic groups uh, do, Jews, how, how, uh, you know, what have you. Um, so he does uh, deal with that, but but the, but the, but 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 the thing I want to hit on is that see you have a lot of people who talk about we need to create black wealth, we need to create black wealth, but oftentimes economic empowerment, owning the land in the community, controlling the economics, controlling the politics, controlling the police force, owning the radio stations, TV stations, things like this, that's not talked about. It's just it's just black people creating wealth. So you can have you can accumulate wealth and still not have economic empowerment. See what you're talking about is economic empowerment, okay? Mm-hmm. So 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 there's a, there's a there's a difference. Economic empowerment is the next step, and that's the most powerful step because we can we can we can have black wealth, right? And still not control the politics in our community, not own the multi-story buildings, right? Not own the radio uh-huh. stations, TV stations, not control our media, but we have wealth. Okay, so so you you need both of them. That's that's what I want that's people right. to understand. It, it, you, you need both of them. Okay, so what should um, you, you talked about immigration? I want to get that. I want to get to that uh, quickly because we know there are about five hundred and seventy-five thousand undocumented black immigrants in this country. We know oftentimes they are very quick to be deported, and we do have some black Americans that are married to, you know, some black immigrants and things like this. Hate whether they're from Haiti, whether they're from, uh, you know, Trinidad, what have you, right? So I saw a video that that you did. You were asking some answering some questions. It was in the last few months, something like that. It was on Facebook, and you were talking about how immigration reform needs to take place, and how the quota on black people immigrating to this country needs to be raised. Right? Talk about that immigration piece for a minute. Uh, well, well, first of all, the as I said, that goes back to this. This country has never changed. The uh, the seventeen ninety first naturalization immigration law. See, black Correct. people in America are the only planned permanent minorities in the country. In a society that right. you pass a constitutional document that says this society will be based on the simple premise of the majority will win and the minority will lose. Just think about that. The majority mm-hmm. will win and the minority will lose. And then they set up a set up a system saying but black folk will be the only permanent systematic minority. 
That's why. That's why when and when when and, and in seventeen fifty, for example, the black folk at that time had a population in this country of almost fifty percent of the population of America was was black, and and and, and the whites got concerned about the blacks getting together with Indians and running all the white Europeans back to Europe. And so at that right. time they said the first thing they're going to do, so they started demanding that the English, that the British stop sending any more blacks in here until they build a constitution. And that was in 1789, so we could set up a system to control it. And once they set up that system, they then started bringing in, they set up quotas. And so in seven, so by, see, as a matter of fact, they set up a slave code and a, a diversity act. As a matter of fact, back in 1710, they had the diversity act, which says that, that, that they laid out mm-hmm. the, the proportions of blacks in America. That makes sure they were scared to death of black folk. So the Diversity Act says in the South, in the, in the southern states, where black folk are the majority population all across the South, that for, and they set up a Diversity Act says that for every four to five blacks that you own, you must have at least one white to be a manager of those blacks. That was throughout the South. That's a part of the diversity code that you all are always talk about. We want diversity. Black folk don't understand a damn thing. That, 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 was, that code was set up to make sure whites in the South dominated black folk across the South by saying that whites would be the management class in the South and they would dominate and you must have one white for every nine blacks. And they built the, they built the Georgia colony underneath South Carolina for that specific reason, to keep blacks from running out of South Carolina plantations, running into Florida, into Spanish territory. And so they asked, asked all the European colonies to clean out their hospitals, their mental institutions, and their, their prisons and send all those, all those, all those ragtag people with all kind of poverty and, and, and mental problems, they ship them to America, and they're going to build a Georgia. They built the state of Georgia off, off, a, off a, a throwaway people coming out of Europe just to be a buffer between blacks in South Carolina and, 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 uh, and, 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 and I mean, a white plantation only in South Carolina stopping blacks from getting to Florida. That's why Georgia came into existence. They had a diversity act. Now they said in the South we want, again, we want one white for every four blacks, five blacks. In the North, they reversed it and said, but by the other side, we want to make sure this is a white nation. We're going to control blacks in the North. In the North, we want at least four to five whites for every one black that's in the North. You understand what I'm saying to you? So that, so that, so that right. in, as, a national, as a nation, whites will be, the, will be a nation of whites. But, and if you have blacks, you must have – Europeans would come into the Statue of Liberty, welcome, send us your, your tired, your poor, those begging to be free, you European immigrants – so we make sure that for every black who gets out of the south and comes north, he'll be outnumbered five to one in the north. And in the south, that, whites, that, that, that blacks will be controlled by one, at least one white controlling them in the south. That, that's, that's, what the whole, that's, that's set up the whole immigration process. Now, and, that, and, that's, and so black folk over the years dropped from being a, almost a 50% of the population because they stopped you from coming and they set up immigration laws and there's a zero quota on black folk. That, that stayed in effect until about the 1950s and 1960s. And so your, your population dropped from almost 50% down to about 9% in the population. <clears throat> and, that, and all these other groups came by and surpassed you. As an example, in, 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 uh, in, in, when the Civil War ended, you had about, uh, you had about, about 45, about, 40, about a little 4,000 Hispanics in the United States in, 19, in the 1860s. But you had 5 million black folk. And by 1900, the, the Hispanic population increased to 100,000, but the black population went up to 12 million. And they got the same identical birth rate for, throughout the 1900s. And yet Hispanics passed black folk, and they are now the dominant min- minority in America. Now, what, 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 why is that? 
because the immigration laws would not let you bring blacks into the country. And so black folk, that, that were, that were out, they're outnumbered whites. I mean, Hispanics as an example. When you had, had 100,000 Hispanics and 12 million black folk, now, now in the United States you've got 55 million Hispanics and 44 million blacks. Why? Because the Hispanic population went up over 5,000%. But the black population mm-hmm. has gone on going up 300%. And that's why in Washington, D.C. right now, it used to be Chocolate City in Washington, D.C., is now it's been gentrified and privatized and where blacks are being dominated and put back 200 years into slavery again because of the population. And you look at the, first, at, you look at the, uh, the social construct in that new book, it'll talk to you about why, why Chocolate City, as an example, where, where in Chocolate City, whites again, white, whites, outnumbered, whites are now taking over the city, and blacks are being buried. Where whites in, a, in, your, in, in Washington, D.C. now, their income, the medium income for whites in Washington, D.C., is about 200, the wealth level is about $287,000. But for a black, what the net worth for a black person is in Washington, D.C., Chocolate City, Michael, $3,500. What is it? 3500 huh? $3,500. $3,500. Where the wealth, you're right. What the net worth for a white person in the in, in Washington is two hundred eighty-one thousand dollars, and that's that's why that's why they got the wealth. And even Hispanics, Hispanics coming into Washington, they got eighty-one times more wealth than black folk. And so black folk right now are, the, are even in PG County. PG County has the largest largest concentration of educated and and, and wealthy blacks in the entire United States. PG County is right outside of Washington D.C., a black predominantly black county. Right. Okay, now, mm-hmm. in that county, when you go over there and find out, well, well, who's got the wealth and power in that black county? Since it's a majority black county, it's not black folk. You know who it is? It is now, it's, it's, it? over there is Hispanics and immigrants. Over there you find, go over there, you find that Hispanics now, have, they, they got about $42,000 worth of income, and, that, and, and that's $7,000 more than blacks. And they've only been here less, they've wow. been here less, than, less than 90 years. Um, Mm-hmm. And the households again, uh, as I told you a few minutes ago, the net white net worth in Washington is two hundred eighty-four thousand. Would be more of a specific, and the net worth of black folk is thirty-five hundred dollars. But again, I was talking about PG County, and this is very important for you. In the PG County, where you have the highest concentration of educated blacks and wealthy blacks in that county, and guess what? In that county, ninety percent of these white Hispanics have been here in less than less than forty years, and they got and they got they got they got. They got Net worth is four times that of black folk in a black county that's predominantly black, right. with the highest concentration of blacks, the most wealthy blacks. Hispanics who've been here less than 40 years got four times the wealth of black folk in PG County because immigrants come in here because really? immigrants, why, how they do it is this right quick. I know I'm talking too long. They, when they oh, come here, they okay, get five benefits that blacks can't get. Price when they come here, they, they come here, they, they come here as immigrants. They get a point ahead mm-hmm. of black folk for being an immigrant. Blacks are the only non-immigrants. Two, they come here with a culture. Black folk are stripped of their culture. So now when they come here, they got two points. They got one for being an immigrant, the second one for having a culture. Three, they come here, they bring a language. That makes it, and black folk have, don't have a specific language to identify with them. So now immigrants got, got three points over black folk. Four, they come in here, they bring their religion. So now blacks didn't have a separate religion. So now they got four black points over black folk. Five, they come in here and they classify themselves as being minorities, along with black folk. Now they got five points and black folk got one. And, then, and it goes on and on. So, when you go, so that's why you, when you ask white folk for a minority or, or people of color, that's a menu that gives white folk a chance to pick and choose who they want. 
You look there and you see the Hispanics, Arabs, Asians, got five points over a black person. They're going to pick them every time. Same thing with women. Black folk would be dominated and controlled always. They're going to be underneath the women across this nation. That's half this thing with sexual harassment going on right now. That goes back to the 1840s when the white women want to be in, want to be equal to the white man. Okay, so uh, when you talk, uh, I've heard you talk about uh, immigrants coming to this country before and getting the different types of advantages, uh, maybe uh, like starting businesses, like free taxes, I think, or something like that. Can you talk for because those are things that we should be fighting for also. Can you talk about immigrants coming to this country, starting businesses, and the type of free resources that they get that we don't get. Can you talk about that for a minute, please? Well, well, yes. But see, they got all kind of they got all kind of benefits they get in type because they are classified as immigrants. Blacks are not classified as immigrants. That's why your last president, mm-hmm. Obama. That's why the minute those mm-hmm. those hundred ten thousand Hispanic kids showed up on the border, he rushed out and gave them three and a half billion dollars to make sure they had enough money to get clothes, food, transportation, schooling, and education, and and housing. But he didn't put he didn't put that's three and a half billion. But he did not put one billion into into black neighborhoods in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, anything like that. Like when he said when, when Obama rushed down and gave three and a half billion dollars every year. He was in office to American Indians coming to the so-called white Indians coming to the White House. Gave him three and a half billion dollars every year for a total of thirty-five billion dollars. He did not invite not one black Indian, a black person, because again. They exclude blacks under political correctness. They got all those advantages. Right now, they got all kind of refugee programs in sanctuary cities that provide specific benefits in terms of education and Social Security. They can get on Social Security after 18 months. Blacks got to wait until they're 65, 67 years of age. They get all these advantages, but our people never address those issues because they don't have the time. They are so busy trying to save the world and save immigrants, Marty, women, gays, and transsexuals. They never had the time or attention. <laughs> no, the, no, the, no, the education to focus on their own people. And that's why you have no right. black leadership in America. You have no, they're so busy saving the world that they, they can't spend two minutes getting educated. That's why most of the people call themselves black leaders or not black leaders, just visible blacks. And they need to be charged with being criminally incompetent because they get up they get in these mm-hmm. high visible positions and talk about everybody but the things, the peculiar conditions of black folk that goes back to slavery and correcting those things. Forget about trying to save the world. Save your own damn people. Right, right. And the sixth thing that immigrants come here with is a knowledge of their history. See, they have culture, but they also have a knowledge of their history, and their history and culture gives them that foundation that teaches them that the only way they're going to survive is through self-reliance. You know, they they, 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 they get resources, but they're, focused, they're fighting for their own people because they have that history and culture intact. Go ahead. Well, you're absolutely right, Embassy, but that, that's why I wrote those five books that black – that, that only the conscious blacks are buying across this country, and probably and the rest of them don't really care about what's happening, going to happen to them and the rest of their home families. Those five books I wrote, Black Labor, White Wealth, Powernomics, The National Plan, uh, Dirty Little Secrets 1 and mm-hmm. 2, and The Black Reader. I wrote that to make sure black fully understood their history. There's no way on earth that any black that read all the five of those books could be ignorant of black history, black culture, and everything else, and what our <laughs> problems are and what our solutions are. But they don't do it. Right. And so consequently, and so, consequently, the question you're asking, uh, which is the next thing I'm working on, which I can't put out until maybe next, next spring or next summer, as I got a, I got a game 
that will show every black person the question you're talking about, you're seeking an answer to. I don't want to talk about it on the phone because that's the next board game that's coming out. It will show black folk exactly how to play the game because in that coding it shows you everything that blacks, why you can't make it and why you're not going to make it. But the, but the game will mm-hmm. give black folk a chance to practice where they can sit down with other members of their race, their own family members, and play this game and learn the things you're talking about. Because not only did, exactly. did, did, did slavery strip black folk of all the assets and resources, but here's the key to, to your point. Not only did slavery strip them of their, of their assets and resources, Michael, but it also stripped them of the one key thing that got them locked in box. It stripped them of their social cohesiveness. Blacks are the most fragmented, yes. decimalized people on earth. And that's my books. My books are designed and my, and, and my, all my speeches and DVDs are designed to bring black folk together by saying you are exceptional people. You're special people. Quit trying to identify with other people. Quit trying to save the world. Save your own people first and give them some respect and recognition and some support. And that's why the game will be, will be the last thing I'm doing. But this Black History Reader covers all this for you. And it's inexcusable. Right. If you run into black folks that, that start to complain about how bad things are, you ask them, have you read all Dr. Anderson's book? They say, no. Then you, then you say, hey, just get out of my way. You're wasting my damn time. Right. You go ahead. Right. And that cohesiveness. Go ahead. Go ahead. But see, see, the cohesiveness would come from what the books are telling you, how to bring about the cohesiveness, how to do it. And if they, until, they, right. until they get right. that committed. It, until they get that committed, let them still watch TV, sing and dance, chase, play with balls, football, basketball, tennis ball, golf ball, sing and dance, run around pretending mm-hmm. they're having a ball and all that. Let them keep doing that because white folks are going to come get them, <laughs> and these other groups are going to bury them alive. And that, co- that cohesiveness, once again, comes from an understanding of your history and culture. It gives you your VIPs, your values, your interests, and your principles, your VIPs, especially the culture. That's what binds the people together. That's what that's what uh, black people have to understand. Once again, we're speaking with Dr. Claude Anderson. His latest book is A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. You can order it right now from his website, powernomics.com, powernomics.com. Um, I know they have a – I know it's – Twenty nine ninety nine, but they have a bundle pack where you get all five of his books uh, for, is it $100 for all five of the books? Yeah, yeah they, they get all five books plus a DVD showing them how to educate black folk. I was the only black that's ever been over in the, a state education system for seven years, state of Florida. And it shows you how you should, what you should be doing to educate our blacks and make them economically and intellectually competitive. That's a free DVD that's thrown in with the five books. And that's called, not in, that's called the, the library pack, the Powernomics library pack. Well, they, should, they should be able to pick okay. it up by going to the website or they can get the solution pack right. for, for $65. That's a Black Labor, White Wealth, Powernomics, and the Black Reader. They can get that for $65. Okay, yeah, I'm right on the website right now. Okay. All right, so um, check this out. People support Dr. Claude Anderson. And just leave us with a few things. In, in the era of Donald Trump, Dr. Claude Anderson, and we see a lot of policies that President Obama had in place to be re, uh, reversed. Uh, a lot of these policies were actually beneficial for black people. We see that the U.S. prison population is the lowest it's been in 20 years as of uh, December 2015, down to 1.53 million. We see that the war on drugs has been redeclared May 12, 2017, by Jefferson Beauregard, Sessions III. We see uh, a lot of policy reversals. So what should, what are some things that you can leave us with that black people should be doing right now, besides buying your, besides getting your books and reading them, because they're going to do that? What are some <laughs> things we should be focused on right now? 
<laughs> right, right. It's, it's very simple. You said it earlier. Understand the nature of our problem, which is and, and that is mm-hmm. the, the wealth maldistribution, wealth and resources. And secondly, learn how to rebuild communities. Uh, third, learn how to if you can't rebuild physical communities, then develop a broad sense of a community where you identify with your people, even if you're not with them at any particular time. And third, fourthly, learn how to start practicing group economics and group politics. And lastly, become a become a socially cohesive group. And, 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 and cease and assist in supporting anybody who will not support you and your people. Absolutely, definitely, definitely. And also visit his second website, HarvestInstitute.org, HarvestInstitute.org. You can get his newsletter there. You can read articles, a lot of information at HarvestInstitute.org. And also you can donate to the Harvest Institute because he needs our support uh, to help him uh, do what he does, keep doing the research, et cetera, okay? Well, look, brother, right. we're going to have to bring you back. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. You know, you know we got, and right now we need we need donations for the Harvest Institute because we're still in court fighting all these lawsuits. I got lawsuits fighting for black folk in the federal courts. We are now in the appeals court right now about the 1866 Indian Treaty, and plus I have about five other lawsuits I got on the table on behalf of black folk that should bring them billions and billions of dollars. But we don't have the money, but I, so I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money doing it, fight for black folk. We don't get any contribution from the wealthy blacks. And uh, we get we do get a lot of little contribution from the poor blacks. The nickels are dying five dollars, ten dollars, dollars, fifty cents, and all that kind of stuff. That which I'm not mm-hmm. pooing, but we need it. And uh, but and lastly, tell them to keep sending that, and we'll keep struggling because I'm not going to give up on black folk. I love them too much. And lastly, if they can't get the books uh, or make a contribution, they contact uh, uh, this number for the Harvest. I mean the Power Numbers Corporation, and that is three zero one three zero one five six four. Six zero seven five, and they want additional information about the Harvest Institute or about the Power Numbers Corporation, about the books and DVDs, and we also we got webinars and websites on it up there. Tell them to call those numbers and uh, and get information. They can order the books directly and ship them overnight. And next time you see my friend Boris Watkins, tell Bart Watkins to keep doing the best he can for our people. I, I still think All I right. a lot of. He's a, he's a good man. Okay. All right, three zero one five six four six zero seven five. All right, Dr. Carl Anderson, man, you take care. We'll bring you back so we can do a video interview uh, next time, man. Take okay. care. Tell your wife okay. I said hello. Also, okay. tell your wife I said I'm sorry that we kept you longer <laughs> than oh, forty five okay. minutes. <laughs> what are you about to say? <laughs> no, I, I I stayed on because I even though I sort of gotten off because I right now you know I'm dealing with some little health challenges coming up, but I wanted, but I just out of sheer respect and appreciation for what you try to do for our people. That's why I stayed on even though oh, right yeah, now I shouldn't you. be on here. Okay. Take care of Michael and tell our people I love him. All right. Take care, Doc. All right. We'll talk right, to you later, man. Now. Peace. All right. Bye. All right. So that was Dr. Claude Anderson. <laughs> that was Dr. Claude Anderson. He was one of my teachers. Uh, visit Powernomics.com, Powernomics.com, HarvestInstitute.org. Also, I want to let you know that we have the new documentary, 1804, The Hidden History of Haiti. 1804, The Hidden History of Haiti. It's available right now at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have a special promotion. For each copy you purchase, you're going to get two digital downloads of um, lectures from uh, my, from myself, Michael M. Hotel. Okay? Uh, so this documentary deals with the history of the Haitian Revolution. It is from director Tariq Nasheed, who uh, is the creator of the Hidden Colors documentaries. It's a fantastic documentary featuring uh, uh, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, uh, Professor James Small, Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene, who we had on last week. We interviewed Professor Kaba uh, last week. He was here in Detroit um, uh, 
last Friday, uh, November 24th, at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History for um, a screening of the documentary Black Friday Part Two. And uh, he'll be back in Detroit December 8th and 9th. Minister Malik Shabazz is bringing him to the True Oracle of God Ministries Church uh, Friday, December 8th, uh, and Saturday, December 9th. Um, so we'll, we're waiting on the flyer for that. We'll get you some information about that. But the documentary 1804, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. So Professor Kaba Kamene is in there, Dr. Linda Jeffries, Professor James Small, Dr. Wade Nobles. Uh, There's a number of people in there, Wycliffe, John, and this deals with the history of the Haitian Revolution. They look at Toussaint L'Ouverture, Duddy Bookman, uh, uh, Dessalines. They look at different aspects of the Haitian Revolution, and they connect the Haitian Revolution and the history of it to the history of America, to the history of slavery in America, to the Caribbean, uh, Caribbean history, and to African history. Okay, so Haiti is very, very important to study. This was the most successful uh, slave rebellion. This is the only slave rebellion where uh, enslaved Africans actually got their freedom, and they set up their own republic. It's called 1804 because they declared their independence January 1st, 1804. So that's available right now at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. I shipped out a bunch of orders yesterday and today. Um, so AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We also have the documentary um, uh, Black Friday Part 2, Black Friday Part 2. Okay, from uh, director Rick Mathis, and I'm featured in that documentary. Professor Kabakamane is in there, Tony Browder, a uh, number of people that deals with um, our African global legacy. And it connects our African global legacy around the world, connects that to economic empowerment. Very, very good documentary. People who came to the screening that we did um, Friday, November 24th at the Charles H. Wright Museum, they were blown away by that. Uh, so, those two documentaries are available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have bundle packs available as well. You know, you get all of my DVD lectures there also, and that helps support the African History Network, helps us stay on the air. Also, purchasing Dr. Claude Anderson's DVDs, you know, that helps support him and helps him keep doing what he's doing, but you can also donate as well. Now, on the homepage of HarvestInstitute.org, I heard him talk about this when I was in Chicago with him. Uh, he was speaking at the Harold Washington Cultural Center, um, it says that breaking news, alert, alert, court cancels oral arguments. The U.S. Appeals Court has canceled oral arguments on the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation's lawsuit on black Indian and black freedmen uh, originally, originally scheduled for November 17, 2017 in Washington, D.C., there will be no oral arguments. This alert is to inform our supporters of the cancellation. Please pass it on. Now, uh, cancellation of oral arguments is not necessarily a statement that we are going to lose, but it is not a helpful sign. We won't know how the court views our case until uh, the court writes an opinion. In the interim, we are uh, going to request re reconsideration of the decision to cancel oral arguments. Obviously, the argument will not occur November 17th, but it still may occur in the future. The injustices the government has committed against the former slaves held by Indian tribes must be made a public national issue. 
see question 83 in Dr. Claude Anderson's uh, book, A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask for More Details. Okay? And uh, we'll give you some, it goes on with some background information. So we'll cover that background information in just a minute here. Uh, I'm going to start broadcasting on Facebook Live. I was running into some technical difficulties tonight, so could not broadcast um, the way I wanted to. Um, But um, let's see here. I'm going to get this going, so let's do this here. Let's get a word from... uh, uh, one of our sponsors, New Business Solutions. New Business Solutions. They can help you. Uh, New Business Solutions can help you with your uh, take your business to the next level. Overworked, suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors, or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. All right, newbusinesssolutions.com, N-U, businesssolutions.com, newbusinesssolutions.com, okay? Okay, um, so we're going to start broadcasting here on Facebook Live here in just a minute. Let's start this. Okay, so let's unplug this here, and let's go ahead with uh, error starting broadcast. Please try again. What the hell? Okay, so let's try this again. All right, so those just tuning in, hey, you listen to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. Okay, so we're broadcasting on Facebook Live. We should be on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. Okay, so we ran into technical. Okay, live stop. Okay, so there was an error publishing a video. Please check it in there. What the hell is this? All right. Not sure what that is. Not sure why the problem is taking place. Let's try this again. We're doing Google. Um, let's see. I'm going to go back to this article here in just a minute, but I wanted to start it. Start broadcasting live on Facebook. Okay, so we're going to try. Uh, uh, we'll try Firefox. Okay, so. Uh, HarvestInstitute.org, and uh, I'm going to try to get this broadcast going on Firefox. What's going on with this? Our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. So we're over one million followers now. We're at like about 1,000,000, 1, 1, something like that. So thanks to everybody who uh, subscribes to our 
our Facebook fan page. Be sure to sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. Uh, sign up for our email newsletter, okay? Or you can go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Sign up for the email newsletter there as well. Okay, so let me try to um, start this broadcast here. Let's try this again. All right, just give me a minute here. All right, so let's try this again. Okay, so uh, I want to go back to this article from HarvestInstitute.org. Okay, shout out to everybody watching us on Facebook Live, our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. Okay, um, we're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio, uh, and uh, we have the information here in the uh, thread uh, of the broadcast. Uh, you can listen to Blog Talk Radio, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, okay? You can listen to the broadcast of the of the show there on Blog Talk Radio. Just finished interviewing Dr. Claude Anderson, okay? And uh, you can listen to um, the, you can listen to it in its entirety, uh, the interview there at uh, blogtalkradio.com, all right? Okay, so, uh, before he got off the, uh, before we wrapped up the interview, Dr. Claude Anderson was talking about the uh, Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of uh, the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866. Okay, and on his website, HarvestInstitute.org, he has two websites: Powernomics.com and HarvestInstitute.org. Okay, on his website, HarvestInstitute.org. He has uh, information about the um, lawsuit that he has, okay? So right on the homepage, says, alert, alert, court cancels oral arguments. The U.S. court has canceled oral arguments of the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation's lawsuit on black Indian and black freedmen, okay? So you can read the rest of that, but it says uh, to see question 83 in Dr. Claude Anderson's a new book that we just talked about, A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask, okay? So, um, once again, this is his, uh, this is Dr. Claude Anderson's latest book. We just interviewed him about it, and we posted the link here uh, on the thread, it's in the, and it's also in the description, uh, so you'll be able to go back and listen to the podcast of the show. It's called A Black History Reader. 101 questions you never thought to ask, okay? So this says uh, the article here on the homepage of his website, harvestinstitute.org, harvestinstitute.org says, look at page, look at question number 83. So question number 83 says, did the 1866 Indian treaties mandate benefits for black freemen and black Indians? Okay, so that's page 232 in his book. And yes, it did. Okay, and that's what he's fighting for. Now, when I interviewed him back January 29, 2017, he talked about how there needs to be a mass mobilization of African Americans across the country. Okay, it can't just be him and a few people fighting for this. All right, so page 232 in his book, 
we're going to get into this, right? Page 232 in his book says, um, and let's, let's post this again here. Um, we'll post it here and on the thread, and we will, um, and it has the link to listen. So as soon as we finish with this broadcast, you can go back and listen to the interview I did with Dr. Claude Anderson. It's podcasted, okay? And you can also go to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. You can listen to all of our podcasts there, including the interview I just did with Dr. Claude Anderson. Okay, so question number 83 says, says, did the 1866 Indian treaties mandate benefits for black freedmen and black Indians? Okay. So uh, the native Indians, so it says here, um, and shout out to people on Facebook, Yolanda, Spivey, Cranston, Lumpkin, uh, Linda, uh, some of the people watching us on Facebook. The native Indians had a relationship with slavery from the beginning of the country. The relationship of Indians and blacks came to a critical point after the Civil War and was the reason for the 1866 treaties. Okay? Now, it's important to note not there are 566 federally recognized tribal nations in this country. Not all of them own black slaves, but you're going to have some. And the most notable ones were the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, or who are collectively known as the uh, um, uh, uh, five civilized tribes of Native Americans. But as Professor James Small said in the panel discussion that we did, at the Black Power Awards weekend a couple weekends ago, and I was in a panel discussion with Professor James Small and Tony Browder, because we were doing a uh, we just, we were doing a panel about the film Black Friday Part Two. Um, Professor James Small talked about the Red Tail Creek Indians. I think it was the Red Tail Creek Indians, and he said that faction of the Creek Indians did not own enslaved Africans. Okay, so you're going to have uh, some variations here, but overall. You're dealing with the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. We know some factions of the Seminoles did not own enslaved Africans, and we know the word Seminole means runaway, and we know a lot of those Seminoles were, um, you know, black African people as well. Okay, so the Native, uh, the native Indians had a relationship with slavery from the beginning uh, of the country. The relationship of Indians and blacks came to a critical point after the Civil War and was the reason for the 1866 treaties. The white European colonists who established the first settlements were fearful that Native Indians could form an alliance with African slaves and revolt. The, the white European colonists were, uh, who, the, 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 the white European settlers, the colonists, were, had a fear that the native Indians could form an alliance with African slaves and revolt. The colonists decided it was better to convince the native Indians to identify with the emerging institution of black enslavement, and to that end, the two parties consummated the Treaty of New York in 1516. The Treaty of New York in 1516. Uh, the Treaty of New York uh, contained provisions that appeared in all subsequent treaties. The colonists promised Native Indians food, clothing, money, and weapons. 
in return, they required the native Indians to cease being hunters, uh, uh, to build farms, own black slaves, and support slavery, okay? If the native Indians accepted those terms, the colonists promised to call them civilized instead of savages and pay them $25 for each runaway slave they captured and returned to the slaveholder. For more than 300 years, the tribes owned, traded, captured, and profited from the enslavement of African people. When the Civil War broke out between the North and the South, all five of the civilized tribes, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, sought to protect their slave investments and signed agreements with the Southern Confederacy to fight with the South against the North to maintain slavery. In the 1866 Indian treaties between the U.S. government and the five civilized tribes of Native Americans required the tribes to release their slaves after the Civil War and describe the legal obligations of the tribes to the black freemen and black Indians. Okay, just one minute here. How's everybody doing tonight? Those just tuning in, okay, so we're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio and on um, Facebook Live, okay? Just a second here. Okay, so you listen to the African History Network show. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We just finished interviewing Dr. Claude Anderson. We interviewed him about his latest book, A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. It's available right now at Powernomics.com, Powernomics.com, or your local African-American book dealer, okay? And I was sharing some information with you that he talked about um, he talked about the lawsuit that he has and hearings coming up uh, dealing with the um, U.S. the uh, oral arguments of the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation's lawsuit on black Indian and black freedmen, and that ties uh, directly to the 1866 uh, 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 black freedmen black Indian uh, black freedmen Indian treaties. Okay, that we're talking about right now. This is page 232 of his book. Uh, question number 83: Did the 1866 Indian treaties mandate benefits for black freemen and black Indians? And uh, shout out to Yolanda Spivey. Uh, Yolanda had the uh, conference call this past uh, Sunday talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So I was on that conference call and I invested some money. Um, a few hundred dollars in uh, Bitcoin, okay? All right, so um, in the 1866 uh, Indian treaties between the U.S. government and the five civilized tribes of Native Americans required the tribes to release their slaves after the Civil War ended and describe the legal obligations of the tribes to the black freedmen and black Indians and the benefits that were due them. Initially, after the Civil War, the Native Indians, who had been slaveholders and had fought on the side of the South to maintain slavery, refused to release their slaves, claiming independent sovereignty. By fighting on the side of the Southern Confederacy, the Indian tribes had broken all previous treaties with the U.S. government because each treaty required loyalty to the U.S. The 1866 treaties were drafted 
by representatives of the U.S. and was signed by Indian uh, chiefs of, of each of the five tribes. The treaties required the native Indians to release their slaves, to give each black freedman and a black Indian $150, 160 acres of land, and uh, most importantly, they were all to be treated as members of the tribes, okay? Yeah, because they were, they, they were supposed to be given citizenship in the tribe also, okay? Uh, that, that's something very important. Now, the language of the 1866 uh, Indian treaties, the language of the 1866 Indian treaties uh, tracked the language of the 14th Amendment that granted citizenship rights to former slaves. The treaties mandated uh, that black freedmen and black Indians be treated similar, similarly in all manners uh, and equal to members of the five civilized tribes. Today, uh, in 2017, being treated similarly would mean black freedmen and black Indians should be tax-exempt, exempt from college tuition, have priority rights to reservation resources, have rights to electronic broadcasting airwaves. That, that means getting free radio station licenses, free TV station licenses. You've heard me talk about this before, okay? Uh, I deal with this in the lecture that I did dealing with the history of Black Wall Street because Black Wall Street ties into this because Tulsa, Oklahoma was founded by Creek, by Creek Indians around 1836, and they got pushed off their um, land in southeastern United States uh, because of the Indian Removal Act of 1830, uh, which was signed into law by that white supremacist, uh, bigoted president, uh, Andrew Jackson, who's a hero to this other uh, white supremacist, bigoted president, Donald Trump. And you just saw uh, a couple of days ago Donald Trump was with uh, the Navajo Indians, okay, at the White House, and they were honoring them because of their service in World War II. Okay, they they used the Navajo language to uh, these were the uh, the code breakers. Okay, but they used the Navajo language to create a code um, to communicate during World War II to help the U.S. And he referenced he he called um, Senator Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, which is a derogatory term. Okay, he used it derogatorily, but. He's honoring these Native Americans in front of a portrait of Andrew Jackson, who was an Indian killer. He was responsible for the death of thousands of Native Americans. You know, this is a this is this is a dumbass. I mean, you know, Trump is just a and and there's speculation that he's mentally ill. There's speculation that he has dementia as well. Okay, so they may implement now. So Joe Scarborough, Joe Scarborough on. Um, Morning Joe on MSNBC just said they need to implement the 25th Amendment on him. Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Study Section 4 of the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so. Um, all right, so so these are the types of benefits that many uh, black Americans qualify for because of the um, 1866 Black Freedmen Indian Treaties. Okay, and many of our ancestors were getting these. They, many of our ancestors were in these treaties and getting these benefits, but they were pushed out of these treaties. Yeah, the cold talkers. Yeah, they were pushed out of these treaties in the uh, uh, in 1941. 
okay, uh, the U.S. government conspired with the five civilized tribes of Native Americans to redefine what a Native American is. And they stated that you had to have one quarter or, or, or one quantum Native American blood, but the original treaties did not state that, okay? All right, so everybody watching, hey, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also, okay? Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in as well. Uh, I'm Michael M. Hotel, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. And we just uh, finished interviewing Dr. Claude Anderson, so I'm sharing some information that we talked about. And uh, you can go back and listen to the uh, podcast of the show um, as well. We have the... Uh, Information here in the in the thread of the broadcast, and we're broadcasting on Blog Talk Radio, uh, Blog Talk Radio right now as well. Our Blog Talk Radio page, we're broadcasting there right now, uh, also. Okay, talked about his latest book, uh, A Black History Reader, uh, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. And we're talking about the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 right now, which is directly tied to the lawsuit he has um, against the U.S. government. Okay, so uh, Black Freedmen and Black Indians should be exempt, uh, uh, should be tax exempt, exempt from college tuition, have priority rights uh, to to uh, reservation resources, have rights to electronic broadcasting airways. Uh, like radio station licenses, TV station licenses, and have federal recognition of land for gaming licenses, okay? And these are uh, benefits that many African Americans qualify for but don't know it. Implicit in the treaties was a direct relationship with the government through the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the U.S. Department of the Interior. On a side note, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Freedmen's Bureau were established at the same time, placing black freedmen and Indians into uh, protected classes, protected classes, okay? That's a very uh, important term, protected classes. But the Freedmen's Bureau was intentionally corrupted. The funds plundered by whites and prematurely terminated because the South, again, had a need for black labor. The Bureau of Indian Affairs still stands and is the government entity through which black freedmen and black Indians also should have a direct relationship, okay? And the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, yep, um, the, uh, and they have a government website, okay? And at that government website, they uh, lay out, the 566 federally recognized tribal nations also, okay? All right, now, uh, in, so, okay, so the Bureau of Indian Affairs still stands and is uh, the government entity through which black freedmen and black Indians also should have a direct relationship. Instead, both groups have had to resort to litigation, to resolve disputes relating to government financial management of allotment accounts uh, for land and material resources. Treaties represent the highest form of law, especially in the U.S., which um, presents itself as a nation of laws. And in the U.S. Constitution, it says that I think it's Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, it says that treaties, Got my copy of the Constitution right here. It says that um, 
treaties are the uh, it says the treaties and the U.S. Constitution are the um, are the highest form of law in the land, something like that. Okay, so it's Article um, Article Six, Article Six of the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made. Or which shall be made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Uh, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Let me repeat this, okay? So this is Article Six of the U.S. Constitution, okay? So you can go to loc.gov. LOC.gov, which is the Library of Congress's website. You can go to LOC.gov uh, or you can go to archives.gov, okay? And uh, you can read the uh, U.S. Constitution there, okay? Constitution, okay? You can read it there. Look at Article 6, okay? Article 6 says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, okay? Shall be the supreme law of the land. And the U.S. Constitution recognizes all of the previous treaties prior to 1787 and the subsequent treaties as well, Okay? So this is what Dr. Claude Anderson is talking about here on page uh, 234 of um, a black history reader, 101 questions you never thought to ask, but you can get from his website, powernomics.com, powernomics.com. And also, those are tuning in, you know, we have the 1804 documentary at our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, 1804, The Hidden History of Haiti, which deals with the history of the Haitian Revolution, Okay. Uh, this is from uh, director Tariq Nasheed, who created Hidden Colors. For each copy you purchase, you get uh, two free digital downloads uh, from myself, Michael, and Hotel. Okay, so let's go back to uh, Dr. Claude Anderson's book. Treaties represent the highest form of law, especially in the U.S., which presents itself as a nation of laws. Since the federal uh, government has a fiduciary responsibility to responsibility to carry out the treaty mandates, it ought not be necessary for blacks to file lawsuits against federal agencies for failure to carry out their obligations to black freedmen and black Indians. The federal government's failure to fully enforce the treaties represents economic justice denied. Now, this is our best chance to get any type of restitution. I really don't like using the term reparation. This is our best chance to get any type of restitution. Now, you know we had Dr. Jahi Issa and Brother Reggie Marbury on. Um, we had uh, had them on a few weeks ago, and they were talking about their article that they wrote for BlackAgendaReport.com, uh, Reparations is Dead, Here's How to Revive It, okay? And they were dealing with understanding law and um, focusing in on the period of time of 1808, Civil War starts uh, April of 1861, April 12th, I think it was, 1861. And January 1st, 1808, 
the international treaties go into effect that the U.S. signed along with Great Britain to abolish the international slave trade, which means to abolish the importation of enslaved Africans coming into their respective countries. But the U.S. is going to violate this and continue to bring in enslaved Africans, and they're going to sign another treaty in 1810 and a few other ones, and they continue to violate these, okay? So that's a legal issue. Now you have a legal issue. Prior to 1808, slavery was legal in this country. So you're trying to get reparations for that, and it's not going to work. You, and, and people are trying to make a moral argument and, and an emotional argument. You don't go to a legal court to make a moral argument, okay? This is why reparations haven't gone anywhere in past few decades. They're going to a legal court to make a moral argument. They're not going to a legal court to make a legal argument. So the federal government's failure to fully enforce the treaties represents economic justice denied, the historical significance of these uh, treaties cannot be minimized because they detail tangible benefits directed to a specific segment of black Americans and their descendants. The economic benefits should have been enjoyed by the black freedmen and black Indians and passed on to their descendants. Over the course of... um, Okay, okay, we're still on. Okay, so over the course, okay, where are we here? The historical significance of these treaties cannot be minimized because they detail tangible benefits directed to a specific segment of black Americans and their descendants. The economic benefits should have been enjoyed by the black freedmen and black Indians and passed on to their descendants. Over the course of the last 150 years, the treaties have served as the basis for Native Indians to demand accountability from the U.S. government for mismanaging Indian assets. Black freedmen and black Indians have asked for the same accountability and the same legal questions, but they have not received answers. Blacks cannot let the economic benefits of these treaties to blacks be ignored. How is it that uh, legitimate benefits assigned to blacks are always forgotten in history? I would argue because we don't understand our history. And if you don't understand your history, you don't know what to fight for. Okay, your history and culture gives you your foundation, gives you your VIPs, your values, your interests, and your principles, and they influence your economic empowerment and political empowerment. So most African Americans don't know that this stuff that that the that the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties exist. They don't understand this history. And when I do, you know, my presentations and I travel and do lectures, things like this, uh, people are blown away by this type of information. They don't know that. Uh, they don't know that the uh, that this took place. A lot of people don't know that uh, you had uh, Native Americans that owned enslaved Africans. Okay, now there's some debate over with some of these groups whether these were whether these were actually slaves or whether they were servants or or whether they were in cultural servitude or whatever. Okay, uh, what we do know is that the U.S. government encouraged them to. Um, enslaved African people, okay? We do know that. And we know that the Black Freeman Indian Treaties exist, okay? And they gave them uh, 
incentives to uh, turn the slaves loose also. Okay, so. All right, now. Black freemen and black Indians have asked for the same accountability and the same legal questions, but they have not received answers. Okay, blacks cannot let the economic... uh, Blacks cannot let the economic benefits of these treaties to blacks be ignored. How is it that legitimate benefits assigned uh, to blacks are always forgotten in history? In 2006, the Black uh, Indian United Legal Defense and Education Fund, Inc., the Black Indian United Legal Defense and Education Fund, Inc., joined with the Harvest Institute to form the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation, to seek counting by the U.S. Department of Interior for management of the assets of specific black freedmen and black Indian families, okay? So this was the lawsuit that Dr. Claude Anderson was involved going back to 2006. It has been a lengthy and expensive legal proceeding. Based on the 1866 treaties, Native Indians had had filed more uh, than 100 similar lawsuits that were at various stages of the legal process, okay? Let me, let, me, let me repeat this here. Based on the 1866 treaties, Native Americans had filed more than 100 similar lawsuits that were at various stages of the legal process, Okay? When, president, when Barack Obama became president at the beginning of his first term in office, he promised to help Native Indians, and he, and he did uh, during the entire eight years, okay? His administration cleared the debt and settled nearly all of their pending lawsuits, awarding them approximately $3.5 billion um, uh, most years for a total of approximately $20 billion, the last batch of 17 pending lawsuits was settled by President Obama in September 2016 for $492 million. Now, you know we reported on this here on the show because uh, I got the email from blacknews.com. Dr. Claude Anderson's wife, Dr. Joanne Anderson, uh, sent a press release to blacknews.com about the um, – $492 million settlement that the Obama administration did with Native Americans, but the claim of the black freedmen Indians, uh, the, the claim of the black Indians was dismissed, okay? So you may be hearing this for the first time here, but we talked about this over a year ago on the show. It was either October 1st, it was late September, early October, that uh, we talked about this here on the show. Okay, and let me see if I can pull up the, um, yeah, we'll pull up the article from uh, blacknews.com here. I have it bookmarked, okay. Okay, so the last batch of the 17 pending lawsuits were settled by uh, the Obama administration in September 2016 for $492 million. This occurred near the end of his second term, and Native Indians were effusive in their thanks to him. The Harvest Institute Freedmen um, 
and the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation and Black Freedmen and Black Indian lawsuits based on the same 1866 treaties uh, with nearly identical questions of law have not been touched or discussed uh, are still stuck in the federal courts, okay? Now, if you go back and listen to the January 29, 2017 interview I did with Dr. Claude Anderson, we talked about the dismissal claims of the black freedmen uh, uh, Indians, and he basically talked about the fact that because there was not mass mobilization, there was not mass protest behind this to put to put pressure on the administration, right, to uh, uh, adhere to the to the 1866 Indian treaties, they were able to dismiss it. Most most of our people don't even know this stuff happened. Okay, I dealt with it. Very few media outlets dealt with this. I saw very few articles about this. I'm glad BlackNews.com um, had some information about this. That's how I found out about it, and I I read the press release from uh, that uh, Dr. Claude Anderson and, and and his wife put out. Okay, so we're gonna post that link here on the thread. And this is why this is why I say you know when you have these various protests. You have these Black Lives Matter protests. I'm not against the Black Lives Matter protests, right? But when you have these protests, when you have protests like, that are going on in St. Louis right now, and in St. Louis they have uh, economic uh, boycotts, targeted sustained economic boycotts against certain retailers because of the um, acquittal, because of the killing of Anthony Lamar Smith in 2011, and uh, the officer that killed him, um, Jason Shockley, was just uh, recently acquitted, okay, a couple months ago, right? So uh, if you read the article from FinalCall.com, FinalCall.com, no justice, no profit, as not spending becomes weapon for justice. No justice, no profit, as not spending becomes weapon for justice, okay? They talk about this. Um, in the article, they talk about the protests going on in St. Louis in the article, okay? And when you have protests like this and you have people out in the streets, I know there were protests uh, for Black Friday, okay? They need to have signs out there that say enforce the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 with a website for people to go to to find out more about it, okay? Because, you know, we'll have these mass protests, Right? And we'll post a link here to the final car article as well. Okay? No justice, no profits. We'll have these mass protests and I'm not against I'm not against the protests, but they have to have a real purpose. And there's two things that don't happen oftentimes. Information like this is not disseminated. And you need to have signs with the names of the white banks to boycott, like Chase Banks and Chase Bank and Wells Fargo and Bank of America, things like this, right? We need to have signs that, uh, quoting Dr. King, saying, uh, we have to always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. We have to always anchor external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal and, 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 and have signs with Dr. King uh, that's from his last speech, April 3rd, 1968. I've been to the mountaintop. He also said, uh, take your money out of the banks downtown and put your money in Tri-State Bank, which is a black-owned bank in Memphis, Tennessee. So we need to have signs that talk about that as well. Now, we also have to have signs that talk about 
enforcing the Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866, okay, at these mass protests and galvanize support around that. We have to galvanize support around that. Then at the end of these protests, after they go out and block traffic and lay down on the tarmac and keep planes from taking place and they stand in front of white businesses and keep people from going into white businesses, spending their money, at the end of that protest, they need to march their black asses down to black-owned businesses and buy them out also. So it's not, it's not just enough to have economic boycotts and not just enough to mobilize people to stand in front of white businesses, right, and block the entrance. But you have to redirect that energy and redirect those dollars to also support African-American-owned businesses. And oftentimes when they have these protests, that's not taking place. But once again, the foundation is African history and culture. The foundation is not economics. African history and culture directs your economics. So a lot of people are more concerned about boycotting a white-owned business than they are about redirecting that energy to support their own businesses. And this is why a lot of these protests don't you don't get the full impact. They don't have the, you don't get the full effect from them. Because that foundation and that, that mentality does not exist. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up here in a few minutes. How's everybody doing? Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page, invite your friends to tune in. Okay, uh, but check out this article. We posted a link to this article. No justice, no profit. Okay, good article from the Final Call. Finalcall.com. No justice, no profit. As not spending becomes weapon for justice, and this, talk, this is talking about economic boycotts of Black Friday. Now, for Black Friday and the Black Friday shopping season, we need to focus on redirecting as much dollars as possible to African American-owned businesses. When we had our panel discussion here in Detroit last Friday for Black Friday, I said we need to make Black Friday real Black Friday. That's the state, that's the day you should kick off a season, not just one day, a season of focusing on spending as many dollars as you can with black-owned businesses, with African-American-owned businesses. Okay, so... Uh, the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation encountered only opposition from the uh, okay. So Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation and Black Freedmen and Black Indian lawsuits based on the same 1866 treaties with nearly identical questions of law have not been touched or discussed are still stuck in the federal courts. The Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation encountered only opposition from the Obama administration and experienced very different from that of native, the Native Indians. To date, families that are descendants of the uh, black, freedmen and, black freedmen and black Indians who are plaintiffs in the lawsuit have not received an accounting of the assets the government was to have managed for them. The litigation battle to correct the uh, racially prejudiced behavior of the U.S. government century during the period that a black man was sitting in the president's chair in the White House. The U.S. Department of Justice was headed first by a black man, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, and finally by a black woman, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and a black man sits as a jurist on the bench of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a question you know, we don't even consider, you know, Clarence Thomas black. 
Um, so, okay. So the litigation battle uh, to correct the racially prejudiced behavior of the U.S. government was fought in the 21st century. All right, so you have President Barack Obama, you have Attorney Generals, you have uh, Clarence Thomas usually votes against African Americans on the Supreme Court. Yet none of them acknowledged the lawsuits nor sought to intervene on behalf of black Americans as was done for Native Indians. The majority of Americans are unaware of the pivotal role Native Indian tribes played in the installation and maintenance of slavery in the United States and and the way the 1866 treaties materialized, okay? So once again, we're dealing with the five civilized tribes of Native Americans, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, okay? There's now all 566 federally recognized tribal nations. Okay, we just we have to make that clear distinction. Okay, now uh, the majority of Americans are unaware of the pivotal role uh, Native Indian tribes played in the installation and maintenance of slavery in the United States and the way the 1866 treaties materialized. Once informed, once informed, the logical questions ought to be. Why are the descendants of slaveholding Native Indians getting benefits from treaties enacted to free slaves while the descendants of enslaved blacks have been denied their mandated benefits and rights for centuries? Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to repeat that. Okay, so this should be, see, every African-American organization needs to have an agenda. All right, now, you can, you know, Use powernomics, the plan he had, Dr. Carl Anderson had there. You can use that. You can take elements from this. This is something that everybody needs to download. This is called We Have a Lot to Lose, Solutions to Advance Black Families in the 21st Century. We Have a Lot to Lose, Solutions to Advance Black Families in the 21st Century. Okay? So this was put together by the Congressional Black Caucus, the CBC. This is the 125-page agenda that the CBC presented to Donald Trump back in March of 2017. I think it was March 22nd. They met with Donald Trump, and they presented an agenda to him. The first thing they do is lay out history. First thing, first thing they do is lay out history dealing with um, African Americans and what happened to us, okay, in this country. All right, they lay out history. Then they lay out uh, uh, various uh, problems that we're dealing with. Then they lay out legislation to address the problem. Okay, they lay out legislation to address the problems. And on page eight, when they deal with the history, one of the things they talk about is how slave patrols and night watches, precursors to modern day police departments, were established to control slaves. Slave patrols and night watches, precursors to modern day police departments, were established to control slaves. People need to read this. Go to cbc.house.gov. CBC.house.gov. That's the official website of Congressional Black Caucus. Download this. We have a lot to lose. Solutions to advance uh, black families in the 21st century. We have a lot to lose. Solutions to advance uh, black families in the 21st century. Right. So the elements here, the elements in that agenda, that every African American organization across the country can adopt to have a very, very strong agenda. And you can take elements from powernomics, things like this, okay? 
uh, and people can adapt it from city to city because out of ten out of ten issues, you know, they may be dealing with seven of those issues in one city and nine of those issues in another city. So you can adapt it based upon geography, based upon what you're dealing with, okay? But let me repeat this. Once informed about the Black Freeman Indian, the 1866 Black Freeman Indian Treaties, right, the logical questions ought to be, why are the descendants of slave-holding Native Indians getting benefits from these treaties enacted to free slaves while the descendants of the enslaved blacks have been denied their mandated benefits and rights for centuries? Okay, both groups were included in these treaties, and it was for subsequent generations. So why are the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians, why are they still getting benefits when the descendants of these enslaved Africans and of these black freedmen, they're not getting the benefit? Now, is this? Once again, this is a law that is still on the books right now being enforced. Now, if slave-holding Indian ancestors, the second question, if slave-holding Indian ancestors are dead and their ancestors are receiving corrective benefits from the 1866 treaties, what is the logic of denying benefits from those same treaties to the descendants of the injured black slaves? Let me repeat this. If, if slave-holding Indian ancestors are dead, and their ancestors are receiving corrective benefits. It should be and their descendants, okay? It should be and their descendants are receiving corrective benefits from the 1866 treaties. What is the logic of denying benefits from those same treaties to the, to the descendants of the injured black slaves? While the lawsuit filed by the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation worked its way through the legal steps of federal small, claim, federal small Claims Court, the Federal Appeals Court, and the Sixth Circuit Court, the Omaha administration, I'm sorry, the Obama administration, annually invited approximately 564 Native Indians to White House receptions and awarded them billions of dollars each year on his, uh, of his two terms. This was the, when they say 564 Native Indians, I think they're talking about um, um, tribal nations, 564 uh, different tribal nations. Because each year, uh, the, President Obama had a, a White House conference of Native Americans. They, they would have it each year. So neither the black Indians nor the black freedmen were invited to attend the White House receptions, nor did they share in the monetary proceeds. When the Obama administration announced um, announced, settle, announced the settlement of the last 17 lawsuits for $492 million, the headline uh, of an article in the Washington Monthly by, Lance, by Nancy Letourneau on September 28, 2016, said, President Obama kept his promise to Native Americans. President Obama kept his promise to Native Americans. The 1866 treaties had two parts. The black freedmen, black Indian side, and the white Indian side. The black freedmen, black Indian side, 
and the white Indian side. What does it mean if only half of the treaty mandates were enforced? The land, money, gas, and oil resources on Indian lands made other people wealthy and were passed on to their descendants. The land, money, gas, and oil resources on uh, Indian lands made other people wealthy and were passed on to their descendants. The assets designated for black freedmen and black Indians should have been available to pass on to succeeding generations, perhaps making black descendants wealthy today. So once again, see, on every agenda that every African-American organization across the country has, I don't care whether it's a black club, whether it's a black parents organization, whether it's Black Lives Matter, NAACP, everything, all of them have agendas, all of them have issues that they're concerned about. Just as almost every Hispanic organization is a, is concerned about immigration reform, and I'm not mad at them for pushing their issues, enforcing the Black Freeman Indian Treaties of 1866 needs to be something that's on every agenda of every African-American organization across the country. It, the, 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 the groundswell, it has to go from a local level, pushing from a local level to state level to national level, okay? You saw they had a women's march January 21st, about a million people in Washington, D.C., day after the inauguration. I'm not mad at them for being able to organize a million people. I'm not mad at them for that. I am mad at the 53% of white women who voted for Donald Trump. I'm a little pissed off about that. I'm also mad at Negroes who sat at home and didn't get out and vote. Mad at them also. You've heard me talk about that. Because there were 16.4 million African Americans registered to vote in 2016, and only 59% of them voted. Donald Trump won the three battleground states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by only 78,000 votes. You had 16.4 million African-Americans registered to vote in 2016, 59% voted. There was rampant voter suppression, yes, how we know. I, I told you about the rampant, rampant voter suppression while it was taking place. And I said, we're going to have to have a record number of African-Americans coming out to vote to compensate for this rampant voter suppression that's taking place. I talked about that during the election cycle. You can go back and listen to my podcasted episodes. We have almost 800 podcasted episodes of our shows. You can go back and listen during the election. You can hear me say this. Go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the home page. Click on listen to podcasts of Michael M. Hotel. All this stuff is documented, okay? So um, in 2012, second term of President Barack Obama, 2012, 66% of African Americans registered to vote voted. That set a record, 66%. We needed the same, at least the same percentage to come out and vote this time, at least 66%. If 66% of African Americans registered to vote voted in uh, 2016, Donald Trump would not be president right now. But people got People bought into Russian propaganda on Facebook. People bought into conspiracy theories. People didn't realize a lot of President Obama's policies were on the ballot, many of them beneficial for African Americans. 
but they hadn't done research. So now now there have been over 100 policy reversals. There have been over 100 policy reversals that Donald Trump has done in his administration, reversing policies of President Obama. Many of those policies were beneficial to us, and we didn't even know that they existed. Just absolutely ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. People need to read this document. Most people haven't read this, don't even know it exists. Progress of the African-American community during the Obama administration. Progress of the African-American community during the Obama administration. Where did you get this from? Whitehouse.gov. What's Whitehouse.gov? The official website of the White House. Okay? This deals with how a lot of policies President Obama put in place benefited the African-Americans and the impact it had on African-Americans. We have to do research. So you go to whitehouse.gov, get this progress of the African-American community during the Obama administration. Then also go back to cbc.house.gov, cbc.house.gov. Download this second document, okay, from the CBC. What did Trump do? What did Trump do? Okay, so Trump said he asked African-Americans, what the hell do you have to lose? Vote for Donald Trump, right? So this deals with the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And this deals with policy reversals. It shows how nominations that he made for various offices, how it had a negative impact on African Americans. This deals with the first 100 days of the Obama administration to show you how policies coming from, I'm sorry, Trump administration, show you how policies from Trump negatively impacted African Americans. And they have 100 different items here that they list. What did Trump do the first 100 days, hashtag stay woke list? Most of the people talking about stay woke haven't read this. Most of the people talking about stay woke haven't read it, don't know it exists. Go to cbc.house.gov, download this, read it, share this with millennials. Because a lot of millennials didn't vote or they voted for Jill Stein or they wrote in Bernie Sanders' name, some idiotic nonsense, right? Then they were out, they were out protest marching, right, after Trump won. So they showed all these protests across the country right after Trump won. And I'm like, I sure hope all these damn people got out and voted. If, if you, uh, now, if you, you know, under 18, you can't vote. Or if you had your, you, you know, your ex-felon and had your voting rights taken away, understand that. But all these other people out there, I, I sure hope y'all voted. Uh, and I hope you voted for somebody who had a chance to actually win. See, that's, that's the mistake people make. See, they go in and write in Mickey Mouse, you know, and say, I voted. No, uh, <laughs> you need to <laughs> – they vote for Jill Stein, who's polling at 2% nationwide. They vote for Gary Johnson, Libertarian Party, polling at 4%. Uh, you need to vote for somebody that has a chance in hell of winning. You know, it's Ralph Nader all over again, year 2000, right? Al Gore – gets 540,000 more popular votes nationwide. George W. Bush wins Florida by 527 popular votes. So he gets the electoral college votes associated with Florida, which gives him 271 electoral college votes. You can't win the electoral college votes associated with the state unless you win the popular vote in the state. This is why people who say the popular vote doesn't matter don't understand how the Electoral College works. I have a whole presentation I've done. You can order it from my website. 
Um, it's uh, deals with the history of the Three Fifths Compromise of 1787, and it deals with the uh, history of the Electoral College. You 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 can't win the Electoral College. You can't win Electoral College votes associated with a state without winning the uh, popular vote in the state. That's how you get the Electoral College votes in the state. So George W. Bush gets 271 Electoral College votes, and he becomes president, even though Al Gore got 540,000 more Electoral College votes, I mean, 540,000 more popular votes. Now, the thing that people miss is that Ralph Nader, who was uh, a third, I'm dealing with, hey, Linda, I'm dealing with facts and evidence. I'll debate anybody on this. Most people didn't read policies. I read policies. I told people during the campaign, I told people, I said, go to DonaldJTrump.com read his 13 policies, go to Hillary Clinton's website, read her 36 policies. I'll debate anybody you have on this. You go back and listen to my podcast and my shows. We did fact-checking from eight different fact-checking sources, fact-checking statements that they made during the campaign, fact-checking debates, fact-checking statements they made during the debates. We compared the policies that they presented on their websites. We talked about the policies that they presented during the, uh, their campaign speeches, okay? So, and, uh, and Linda, you don't even understand the crime bill. First of all, Joe Biden was the chief architect and main sponsor of the crime bill, which was signed the law September 13, 1994. You haven't read the crime bill. You don't even understand it. You don't understand the fact that 87% of the people that went to prison during the two terms of, of, of Bill Clinton went under state law and not federal law. You don't understand the fact that states had already started passing longer, harsher sentences in the early 1970s, going back to Richard Nixon declaring his war on drugs June 17, 1971, okay? So if you want to deal, see, you, you throw out these little things that you haven't researched. I'm a researcher. I'll debate anybody you got. I don't care if you have four master's degrees and two PhDs. I'll debate anybody you have on this information. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so once again, and then you throw out super predator. Well, if you actually go research that, okay, if you actually read the paragraph before, it's 1996 when Hillary Clinton used the term super predator one time. If you read the paragraph before the term super predator and paragraph after, she was talking about gang violence. She didn't even mention race at all. So when the Black Lives Matter activist said, oh, she called black people, uh, black youth super predators, when you actually read the transcript of the speech, that's not, what, that's not what was said. She was talking about gang violence. Now, I disagree with using the term. The term was a popular term at that time. I, I disagree with using the term, but she did not mention race at all. And the other thing that nobody wants to talk about, and you can read the article from AtlantaBlackStar.com that deals with this, uh, white gang violence was worse in America at that time than gang violence in the African-American community. Now, this is something that most people don't want to talk about. If you do the research, uh, you will know this. How do we know? Okay, number one, I do research. I have about 15,000 articles in my research database. Here's one of them. Nine facts that show white-on-white crime far exceeds black-on-black crime and how media outlets conceal it. 
AtlantaBlackStar.com, March 3rd, 2015. You want to do research. I'll debate anybody you've got. Once again, I'll debate anybody you've got. You better bring a hard hat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because I'm going to wear your ass out with the research. Read this article. Pay, pay close attention to number seven, okay? So this article deals with nine facts about white-on-white violence that far exceeds black-on-black violence, but the, but the news outlets controlled by Europeans don't uh, deal with this type of information, Okay. And the trolls that are on here who have nothing better to do than to come on here and mess with me, you don't know this type of information either. That's why you're not talking about it. So I'm purposely leaving the trolls on here so we can expose who you are and show you as the dumbasses that you actually are. Because you, you don't deal with facts and evidence. You just come on and just throw out little little terms and things like this because you don't do any research. Halfway you can't read, Okay. Halfway you can't read. But this is what happens when your mother and father are actually brother and sister. So, you know, that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the Fox News, uh, the Fox News crowd, okay? So if you look at number seven, uh, number, fact number seven deals with gang killings, right? Uh, when gang-related killings are referred to on the news, they treat it as an almost exclusively black problem. However, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, for the period of 1980 to 2008, a majority, 53.3% of gang homicides, were committed by white offenders. Uh-oh, uh-oh, why isn't this all over Fox News? From 1980 to 2008, a majority, 53.3% of gang homicides, were committed by white offenders, and the majority of gang homicide victims, 56.5%, were white. Hmm. But, but, you know, when they make movies like Colors, when they, so why don't they talk about white-on-white crime on, on, on the evening news? Because the majority of the gang violence was being committed by white people. Some of these dumbasses here trolling me. You can troll me. I got something for your ass, though. You can troll me. I got you. I deal with idiots like you with facts and evidence. You can't handle the facts and evidence because half of you all can't read. Here's the link to the article, right? Atlantablackstar.com. But then I went a step further. What did I do? I went and read the 36-page report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that dealt with the period, dealt with homicides from 1980 to 2008 to verify the information that AtlantaBlackStar.com had. So on page number 12, table number 7, they confirmed the information. 53.3% of gang homicides from 1980 to 2008 were committed by white people. Some of the dumbasses trolling me right now, they don't know this. Well, some of them do because some of them are gang members and their, their relatives are gang members. and You know, it's because they didn't have fathers in the home and a lot of them were strung out on crack and things like this or opioids. Right? Well, I'm addicted to opioids, right? And the majority of gang homicide victims, 56.5%, were white. Why isn't this talked about? So next time somebody talks to you about black-on-black crime, I'm like, well, wait a second, hold on. <laughs> you all shooting each other and killing each other, you're still doing it. You're killing each other to get money for opioid, for your opioid addiction and your heroin addiction and things like that. 
So, you know, don't don't come at me with this nonsense. I'm the wrong person to come at with BS. Seriously. Okay. Um so let's see. I think I have this uh okay. I think I have this other article. Uh I think I have this study. Uh, I think I have this study bookmarked also. Uh, It was uh, homicides. Let's look at this here. Okay, here we go. I think this is it right here. Let's look at this. Bureau of Justice Statistics. I have thousands of articles uh, bookmarked. We'll pull that up. But read that article from AtlantaBlackStar.com, okay? Read that article from AtlantaBlackStar.com, all right? Uh, Very, very important article. Yeah, whites commit more mass shootings also than uh, um, African Americans as well. Actually, when you look at the uh, Box.com had an article about this, um, White people, uh, white males, white males are the, uh, commit more uh, terrorist acts in the U.S. than Muslims. Okay, um, and I wonder if uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions the Third is uh, focused on that. Attorney General, read this article here. Now, some of the people trolling me, they know who they know who some of these people are because they're their relatives. You know, these mass shooters, they they know who some of these people are. They're they're their relatives. White men are a bigger domestic terrorist threat than uh, Muslim foreigners. White men are a bigger domestic terrorist threat than Muslim foreigners. Since Trump took office, more Americans have been killed by white American men with no connection to Islam than by Muslim terrorists uh, or foreigners. Since Donald Trump took office, more Americans have been killed by white American men with no connection to Islam than by Muslim terrorists or foreigners. But Donald Trump wants to focus on Muslims, and um, he wants to um, focus focus on Muslims and label them as terrorists and ban Muslims. He's not talking about banning crazy white men from America. He's not talking about banning crazy white men from America. Notice that. Probably because he wouldn't be able to get back in if he leaves the country. Okay, so check out that article also. And then we posted the uh, link to the 36-page report from uh, the – did I post that? Okay, here it is. Homicide trends in the United States, 1980 to 2008. Annual rates for 2009 and 2010. Okay. This is the 36-page report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, that was referenced in the article from AtlantaBlackStar.com, okay? So we'll post this here on the thread as well. All right, so let's post this here on the thread also. All right. So we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. I want to go back to this, uh, uh, go back to Dr. Claude Anderson's book, his latest book, A Black History Reader. 
101 questions you never thought to ask. Rose said, please ignore the trolls. Yep. Well, I engaged some of them for a few minutes to show how ignorant they are. Because uh, some of them think, see, a lot of them, when, when, you, when you expose them and show how ignorant they are, then a lot of them don't know what to do. See, they just they think they, they're just going to come on and say something, right, and then you blow up at them or block them. Now, I'll wear a troll's ass out. See, I have trolls, and I'm in seven documentaries, right? I have trolls in different area codes. I'll wear a troll's ass out. I'll make a troll wish they were never born, okay? So, uh, and they have nothing better to do, you know, besides having sex with their sister and eating mayonnaise sandwiches and listening to John Cougar Mellencamp records, they have nothing better to do. But they're going to learn something tonight. I guarantee you they learn something tonight. Okay, so page 236 of a black history reader, 101 questions you never thought to ask. Okay? Oh, I know I could block them. I just blocked one of these dumbasses, you know, after I, after I used them for target practice, right? It made it, it made idiots out of them, you know. Then I'll block them. When I, when, when once they have outlived their usefulness, then I'll then I'll block them. But I use them for target practice. Okay, so when the Obama administration announced uh, settlement of the last seventeen lawsuits for four hundred ninety-two million, the headline of an article in the Washington Monthly by Nancy Letourneau on September. Uh, 28, 2016, said President Obama kept his promise to Native Americans. The 1866 treaties uh, had two parts, the black freedmen, black Indian side, and the white Indian side. What does it mean? It, what does it mean if only half of the treaty mandates were enforced? The land, money, gas, and oil resources on Indian lands made other people wealthy and were passed on to their descendants. The assets designated for black freedmen and black Indians should have been available to pass on to to succeeding generations, perhaps making black descendants wealthy today. It is uh, up to black people to express their indignation and demand reparations or restitution for the economic losses and mount the political campaign necessary to bring attention to this historic travesty. Why is it that black people are so reluctant to demand justice and the benefits that that are due to them, especially once the legal case has been made, okay? Why is it that black people are so reluctant to demand justice and the benefits that are due to them, especially once the legal case has been made? Fatigue is most likely a factor. Lack of leadership could be another factor, okay, First of all, it starts with lack of understanding of your history and culture, lack of understanding of your history and culture, because having a proper understanding of your history and culture helps to create the type, the, the proper type of leadership that you need. To support the case of the Harvest Institute Freedmen Federation's Indian lawsuit, black political action should demand a government accounting to the families and resolution of uh, the issue at the highest levels of government. Enforcement of the 1866 Indian treaties is more a political issue than a legal one. Enforcement 
of the 1866 Indian treaties is, is more of a political issue than a legal one, you, you have to have mass mobilization around this. But at the same time, as uh, Dr. Jahi Issa pointed out when um, I interviewed him uh, a few weeks ago and brother Reggie Mabry, uh, we also needed to, to, to demand an inquiry by the U.S. government into the Black Freeman Indian Treaties because uh, he, uh, Dr. Jahi Issa talked about how Native Americans had an inquiry done which looks at the history, looks at actually what they have legal claim to, okay? We have to have an inquiry done as well, all right? Okay. All right. Okay, so check out, uh, you can get Dr. Claude Anderson's book from Powernomics.com, A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask. A Black History Reader, 101 Questions You Never Thought to Ask, okay? All right, so, yeah, history and law are connected. They're not separate. Yeah, yeah, the, the history and law are connected, absolutely. Uh, Mo Bay said history, and well, many of our people don't understand history, don't understand law. Law and policies impact history. History impacts law and policies. They, they, they do, so we have to understand all of that, okay? All right. So the uh, new documentary, 1804, The Hidden History of Haiti, deals with the history of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, it's available right now at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. For each uh, copy you purchase, you'll get um, two free digital downloads from myself, Michael M. Hotel. You get uh, two of my presentations on digital downloads. So we're sending out the digital downloads instead of the um, sending out the digital downloads of my presentation instead of the physical DVDs because we can send that to you before the DVD gets there. Here is the uh, trailer of uh, 1804, The Hidden History of Haiti. Let me see what it's playing. Oh, no, you know what? This is not in the um, – so I don't think this is going to play. I don't think you're going to be able to hear this on blog talk. Okay, yeah, no, this is not playing. Okay. All right, well, it's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the home page. Click on order here, Okay. All right, um, you know, in the interview I did with Dr. Claude Anderson, I talked about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's one of our most misunderstood uh, leaders. Uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote five books. I encourage people to read his books, especially his last one. The last one is the most important one. Where do we go from here, chaos or community? Where do we go from here, chaos or community? most important book, 1967, okay? But um, when I was talking to Dr. Anderson, I was dealing with, I, I talked about uh, what Dr. King said leading up to the Poor People's March. And on page, uh, this is another book you should get, How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. How White Folks Got So Rich, The Untold Story of American White Supremacy. Okay, this is from the Nation of Islam Research Group. Very, very crucial book, very important book, How White Folks Got So Rich. 
okay, because this book deals with uh, a lot of our history and the public policies that were put in place to maldistribute the wealth, power, resources into the hands of Europeans. Excellent book. This is the third edition. I have the first and second edition. This is the third edition, okay? So, okay, those listening on Blog Talk Radio, uh, we're about to stop live streaming in like uh, 90 seconds. Uh, if you want to continue to listen live, uh, call in, listen by phone, 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375. If you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, if you're watching on Facebook, you're fine right where you are, Okay. So on page 73 of the third edition of How White Folks Got So Rich, it says, just before his murder by the United States government, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had shifted his focus from a social and political agenda to the acquisition of land. Okay? Now, he always focused on economics. People need to really understand him. He always focused on economics. But here he was talking about the acquisition of land. In 1968, he spoke rural Mississippi church and put land front and center. Here's what he said. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor, which means that it was, which meant it, it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. So this is after slavery ends, right? 18, uh, slavery ends in 1865. Okay, you had the ratification of the 13th Amendment, December 6, 1865. But not only did they give uh, the land, they built land grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided country, they, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we're coming to get our check. So this is Dr. King in 1968, shortly before he was assassinated. Within days of uttering those 169 words, Dr. King was murdered, uh, by an assassin in the employ of the United States government. The federal government has only recently, only recently agreed to pay a measly $1.2 billion to a small fraction of the black farmers who were denied FHA loans that white farmers routinely received. Compare with the 5 to $6 trillion cost of U.S. wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Libya, etc. Um, a side note was that it was President Obama that paid the uh, settlement to the black farmers. Nobody wants to talk about that, but that was President Obama that did that. Check out how white folks got so rich, the untold story of American white supremacy. 
Okay, you can order this from NOI.org, NOI.org. That's the Nation of Islam Research Group, okay? All right, so, look, we got to get out of here. Um, this Sunday, I won't be on live broadcasting on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation. I may, we may broadcast here um, the, the uh, Detroit Titans, the University of Detroit Titans uh, basketball, men's basketball team. Um, you know, they, they play the game. They, they have the simulcast of the games on 9, 10 a.m. So my show is preempted. They're playing in Los Angeles, so uh, you'll you'll hear that on 910. We may broadcast here live on Blog Talk Radio on Facebook on Sunday night. Have to see how I'm feeling, okay? All right, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the new documentary, 1805, The History of Haiti. deals with the history of the Haitian Revolution. And uh, yeah, Dr. Call, that, well, Dr. Leonard Jeffries in there. You have uh, Dr. Wade Nobles, uh, a lot of people in that documentary. Uh, Professor James Small, Wycliffe John, Professor Kabahai Walter Kamene. Fantastic documentary. Available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay, we'll post a um, link here on the thread of the broadcast again for the uh, film. All right. Uh, information to order it at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All of my DVD presentations are there. I have about 35 of my DVD presentations, about 35 of my lectures there. We have documentaries. We have a recommended reading list of books also. Uh, and uh, you support the African History Network that helps us stay on the air, helps us keep doing the research, keep broadcasting. So remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the covers of his actions because the mind can't teach or do what it doesn't know. People ask, why is studying history and culture so important? Well, you don't ask that to Jews. You don't ask that to Hispanics. You don't ask that to Asians. You don't ask that to Chaldeans or Germans or Italians or French or the French. But just to answer your question, a people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past and the present and the future. A people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past, in the present, and the future to meet the needs of the community because things happen in cycles. A people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past, in the present, and the future to meet the needs of the community. Okay? So remember, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you next time. Peace. Got to get out of here. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can uh, listen to the full audio podcast of the interview I did with uh, Dr. Claude Anderson. Go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Right on the homepage, page, uh, click on listen to podcasts of uh, Michael M. Hotel. And uh, you can listen there, and you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network Show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network Show. All right? Talk to you later. Peace.